avoid ace starters early, right? Maybe not. I'll ask Ariel Cohen from Rotographs and CBS Sportsline next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February the 15th. It's show number three of the 2019 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs and CBS Sportsline discussing why it's actually sound to take an ace starter early, about his ATC projection system and how it compares with some others. We'll talk about his Twitter comments, his boons and banes, and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Will Myers, Luis Castillo, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at Jose Barrios, Devon Travis, and more. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Tampa second baseman Ken Wong. And in our Market Watch position preview segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at third baseman. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about endgamers I've been tracking. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Pitchers and catchers are in camp. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs and CBS Sportsline. Ariel, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. It's your first time. Uh, yes, and thank you so much for having me, Patrick. I'm very excited and delighted to be here. So before we start talking about the ATC projection system and some of your uh, comments on Twitter and all that kind of stuff, how many teams are you planning to play this season in fantasy baseball? I'm probably going to be in about seven or eight leagues. I'll be in two expert leagues, the Tout Wars Draft and Hold and the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational. I'm going to be doing about two or three NFBC leagues, a uh, couple of home leagues, and one family league, which is my favorite. It's a four-team New York Mets-only auction league that I do with my wife and two sons. Four teams, and you guys got to pick nobody but the Mets. Actually, not a bad year to be looking at the Mets. you got some pitching choices and certainly some interesting uh, position player choices. Yeah, well, we only have uh, four position spots, an infielder, outfielder, starter, and reliever, uh, which, which actually makes a great dynamic for four teams. Yeah, it does, and uh, I'm curious, uh, is this your first year in the Fantasy Baseball Invitational? Uh, it's my second year. Uh, last year... I uh, was in the same league as Clay Link, the overall winner. I finished in second place in that league, but th- there was no stopping him. Uh, he-, he crushed everybody in-, in so many industry leagues last year. Yeah, he had a great year. I've been uh, listening to him on some podcasts, and uh, he was talking about the mixture of uh, shrewd picks and some good luck that he uh, managed to put together on a lot of different teams. Uh, and, yeah, he ran away with the great fantasy baseball invitational, that's for sure. Uh, before we get on uh, your home leagues, what are the formats there? In the home leagues, I usually play in uh, mixed auction rotisseries, um, 10 or 14 team leagues, depending upon which one I do. 
Oh, so those are pretty shallow. So it's a lot of a uh, lot of calibration of all stars and trying to try. It's more about uh, I, I I've been in those leagues and I'm going to be in one again uh, this week. And it it strikes me that the 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 format lends itself to trying to figure out which good player you want at the end of the draft, and kind of skews how you look at the top of the draft. Yeah, I mean it's evaluation exercise for me, and you know to be honest, it really doesn't matter for me what the format is. That that's just the the one that I've been playing in most of the time, and I vastly prefer the auctions to the drafts these days. I do too, for a, a lot of different reasons. Not least uh, the idea that I'm more in control of my own destiny. I, I'm playing in the Tout Wars auction, and I'm playing in a mixed league auction this year as well. And I'm really been struck about how different the valuations are and the strategies are. And uh, I'm struck by the idea that uh, people need to tailor their draft and auction strategies to fit the fantasy context, the league context, also what they think about what's going on in the categories. Is there a common theme this year to your draft and auction planning? I mean, I, I never have a, 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 a go-to thing that I have to do. I, I don't see it as a must to, to plan I want a certain player or I need certain speed on the top or so. My goal is to maximize value and maximize my return on all players. Um, I mean, the general notion is that you need to buy players at bargains. I had a friend of mine last year that said, hey, Ariel, uh, how much should I buy Lorenzo Cain for in, an au- in his auction? And I came up with the values, and I said, well, he's worth $18. So he said, great, $18. Um, he comes back the next day, and he says, Ariel, I bought him for $18. He said, that, isn't that awesome? And I said, that's, that's awful. No, you shouldn't be buying Lorenzo Cain for $18. If he's worth 18 you should be buying him for $14 or something lower. You need to spend less money to, acquire, to uh, b- purchase more value. Otherwise, you're going to wind up with an average team. You're, you're going to finish in seventh place in a 15-team league. And you're not going to finish first. You're not going to finish last. You're just going to have an average team. So I don't tailor my draft. I run with whatever dynamic I think will get me the most bargains. Now, I, I try to plan um, where I think that I see my player bargains are and where the market's doing. So I'll do a very extensive ADP versus my value search, but there's no specific formula other than get value, get value. Right, and I think we all know that, but it's sometimes easier said than done. I mean, Lorenzo Cain comes up, and you say, I'm not going over 14, and he does because somebody else thinks he's worth 15 or more, and if that keeps happening, all of a sudden you find yourself halfway through the draft with no players. I know I know this from experience. Well, um, I, I do a couple of things to, to, help, me, to help me get there. Um, I'll give you two great pieces of advice that I do. Um, number one is I try to find the hot spots. Um, I call a hot spot a group of players that are in one position or a group of players who have a similar key statistic, so they're all 20 stolen base guys or so. And they all have about the same market value, and they're all bargains according to my projections. So, for example, this year I have Indrelton Simmons, Jorge Polanco, and Marcus Semyon, all our shortstops that are going roughly in the same range that are all a bargains. Now, if I target any one player... I'm probably not going to get that specific player. But because there are three fairly interchangeable players, there's a high probability that I'm going to get at least one of them at the market value. One of them can go early, one of them can go late, but I'll get at least one. So I call it a hot spot, 
and I try to find all of the hot spots through all of the different positions, through all of the different statistical categories, and come up with groups of players so that I can count on getting somebody from each spot. Um, and, and this works. I, I end up getting bargains all over the place and end up filling out my categories where need be because I'm planning for those hot spots. The other strategy I'll tell you is called don't leave a player in a box. A lot of people ask the question, should you nominate players that you want or should you nominate players that you don't want at an auction? And that's a great question. Some people will say don't nominate who you want, get money off the board, put players that you don't want, they'll all go overvalued, and you'll get your players cheaper and you'll get bargains later. And, and that has some merit. Some people like Larry Schechter will say, only nominate players you want. So, for example, if he thinks that he can get a $5 bargain on Joey Votto, but only a $3 bargain on Eric Hosmer, you do not want Eric Hosmer to come up first before Votto comes because you don't want to be in a position to say, hmm, I can grab Hosmer at a $3 bargain now, but... I have to make the decision, do I take the $3 now or wait to see if I can get a $5 bargain on Votto? It could backfire. Um, and it's a valid approach also. I would say you need to think of a combination of both, <clears throat> that it really depends on where you are in the draft. You know, if you're early in the draft and you just acquired a, a, a very high first baseman, let's say you bought Paul Goldschmidt, and everybody else has more money than you, um, then nominate Freddie Freeman. You're not going to buy him. It's not going to fit in your budget. It's a good time to slow down and get money off the board. But you have to be very careful, what I call, don't leave the player in the box. If there are two shortstops that are high value left on the board and there's a large drop-off to that third shortstop, you, and you prefer the second one on that list, you have to nominate that second player. Because if you don't nominate him and that top shortstop comes up and he gets taken by somebody, then your player is going to have a much larger value than the rest of the boat. And because of the demand for him, he's going to go for more than he really should. And, and I've had that come up all the time where, oh, no, the player I want is, is available, but he's really the only good guy left. If you get into that spot, you're not going to get him at a bargain. So you need to be conscious of nominating players before your player that you want is the top guy available. At the same time, though, you have to be cognizant of the possibility that you're going to do everything right and it's still not going to work out because somebody in the uh, at the table is going to say, I bid 22, and all of a sudden the guy you wanted is now the last guy available and overpriced by your valuing system, so then you have to make a choice. Do you go down a tier and redistribute? Do you ever go over uh, by a dollar or two just to make sure you get a, a key player at the, at the end of a, of a value tier? Um, I, I try not to where possible. I, I have no problem going a dollar or two over high up in the draft uh, because I'll get that bigger bargain than I anticipated later down. Um, I, of course, I've had that situation where, uh, listen, I really got to do this and I get that guy, so I'll, I'll go over here and there a dollar over, but uh, I, I really hate doing that where possible. Yeah, we all hate doing it. So I'm curious, we're going to be talking in a second about your ATC projections and valuations, but you've referred to the fact that you that you use your own valuations to establish where you think these bargains are. When you look at your projections, and let's assume a 15-team mixer, how much is Mike Trout worth? 
Um, Mike Trout is going to be worth uh, somewhere in the low $40, maybe somewhere between $42 to $44, depending upon exactly the format. NFBC, I have him right now worth 43 And so you're probably not going to get him because somebody's going a bit higher than that, almost certainly. No. In, in, uh, with hitters, I've, I've found that I end up not taking the high-valued hitters. I'll let people overpay by 5 6 $7 for those top hitters, and I'm fine with playing the entire middle for all, my hitting, for all the hitting positions. Yeah, me too. But again, it, do you ever worry about or has it ever been a concern or just what are your comments on the idea that if – Five or six of the players at the table are overbidding the top guys, Betts and Trout and, and all the first-round type talents. All of a sudden, you get into that middle tier and you're hoping to get a bunch of bargains, but because so many other players at the table, all the other nine guys plus you, uh, don't have any offensive players yet, that all of a sudden now there's going to be overbidding on the middle tier players, only you're not getting as good a player. Um, sh- well, sure, absolutely. I mean, I-, I always find there should be a couple players in the middle that I'm going to get at bargains. But, yeah, you don't want to fall into a situation where uh, all of a sudden, you know, the 10 players are all overbid by $5 and you're caught at the end. But that's where market research comes in. You need to really be prepared with where you think players are going to go. And if everybody in the outfield is going for 6 $7 above market value, it's okay to pay that market premium, but you want to be below that grade. So if everyone's paying a $6 average market premium, some people are going to go for $8 more, I'd rather go on the 5 $6 end. Because then they're making a $6, $7, $8 loss. I'm only making a $5 loss. I'm still more profitable or less unprofitable than them. I have no problem paying that market premium. I mean, I find that to be more the case in pitching than hitting. Um, I find that hitting, I don't have to pay that market premium. In pitching, you do, and, and I'll do that. Do you plug a different value uh, setup into your system than you play yourself when you're looking at how you're going to play a league? And what I mean by that is... Uh, Almost all the valuation systems now ask you to set us a hitting pitching split, 70-30, 69-31, whatever. And the advice that I've always seen is set the projection system for what you think the league will do, but that isn't necessarily what you're going to do. Um, you know, I've always been better at pitching than hitting, so I generally will set the percentage split maybe 2 to 3% higher for hitting than the league average just to give me a, a little bit more cushion on the hitters because I, I feel that I, I'm a little bit better in picking out the pitchers in general. But, you know, you always want to set your, your splits to mimic the league because if, if you don't, you know, and you, let's say you put more weight into the hitters, you're going to find that a lot of your hitters are going to be undervalued and a lot of the pitchers are going to be overvalued, you want to come up with a situation that the middle of the pack is going to look like the market and then you'll be able to get to gauge whether you have a better or worse player than what the market is seeing. So you want to be somewhat close to the market, but put your tendencies in if you want just a, a snick lower or a snick higher. What I've done over the years is do both. I'll, I'll set it up with what I think the league is going to do, which is typically, you know, 68, 32, something like that. And then I'll rerun the system with my own preference, which is to, to overvalue hitters than 
relative to pitchers because I want to spend more on on hitters. I just think I can do a better job managing pitchers, especially in a mixed league where you have all the access to all those extra pitchers who aren't drafted relative to hitters. And so I, I, I'll set it up 68-32 on the league one, and then I'll set it up 71-29 for my own one. And then I'll see you know where are the gaps, where are the big opportunities using those differences rather than trying to predict the market differences. Yeah, and that's a fine approach as well. Well, we've been talking a little bit about your ATC projections. That's one of your main claims to fantasy fame that you have developed this new projection system. And uh, what made you think the fantasy baseball universe needed another projections evaluation system? <laughs> um, no, I, I didn't uh, think that, oh, everyone needs a new system. Um, I, I just built it a number of years ago just for me to win my own home league. Um, the, the good actuary in me uh, just wants to solve a great problem, and um, I, I just wanted to win for my own personal preference, and uh, it, it just got some traction when I started playing in the NFBC, and, and I bumped into some Fangraphs guys, and uh, you know, when I showed it to uh, Eno Saris and uh, David Appleman, they said, yeah, this is fantastic. We want to get this on Fangraphs. How does your system differ from everybody else's? All right, so ATC stands for the average total cost. And um, I'll give you an example of, of what ATC does by a comparison to, to a hurricane force, uh, forecasting. Um, I do a lot of modeling at my job, uh, and I deal with a lot of weather phenomenon, so it's something easy to understand. Um, when, uh, when a hurricane is brewing in the Atlantic, I'm sure you've seen this, there's the three and the five-day probability cones, and then you see a dotted line in the middle with the most probable route that the hurricane is going to take. Well, that isn't just one model that produces that cone. There are actually eight or ten models behind that. Um, there's the Clipper model and the aviation model, and there's a fluid dynamics model in there and European model. Each model does a slightly better job at different elements. You know, one model could be better for projecting wind speed. One is better for storm direction. One might be better for precipitation, temperature, so on and so forth. These models are then combined using the best elements from each, and that's how you get that dotted line in the center. They run mathematical regressions to figure out the best way of combining all the models to give you the best estimate of the storm center line. And that's really in a nutshell of how the ATC system operates, but not for weather, but for fantasy baseball. So I gather a number of different projection sets, and I combine them using different weights for different stats. So one system might have a 20% weight for home runs, but it might be worse at pitcher strikeouts. It'll only get 2%. It's not a simple weighted average projection that some people do. It's a very complex and statistically regressed combination. And I do other neat things. Um, for, for rookies, I might have a totally different mix of what the weights of the projection system to use are. I might do the same thing for injury bounce-back players and all other different classifications of players. Um, and the effect is to statistically give the closest aggregate predictor for what a player's stat line is from underlying projections, and it has historically proven to really work very, very effectively. So do you separate it out into uh, like a per 600 plate appearance level of performance uh, and then as a separate thing look at playing time or is it, is it all baked in at the same time? So for player performance, 
I run a projection. So we're talking stolen bases to plate appearances and homers to plate appearances and pitcher strikeouts to innings pitched. Those are all rates per, per playing time, which are done in this method. And I do the same thing for the playing time itself. There are certain systems which give a much better playing time indication. I'll tell you that the manual systems do a better job uh, than the computer models at forecasting player time, so they'll get a much larger mix. But, but all things are done uh, in a similar manner, and then I multiply in the end uh, the rate time to playing time to get the full projection. Well, that's pretty ingenious. You know what it reminds me of is uh, how 538 does political polling, where they have they look at like dozens or hundreds of different polls, but they weight them according to how well they've polled accurately in the past. And so a really accurate, consistently accurate polling company gets a bigger share of the uh, of the outcome as 538 sees it. Uh, it's, it's ingenious. Yep, and that's exactly what, what I'm doing here. I, I call myself a mini Nate Silver for fantasy baseball. Um, just as he takes all the polls and, hey, you know, the, the, uh, this poll grades to a C. It's not fantastic. But this one's better for national. This one's better for local Congress races. And he'll use all the crappy ones as well, but he'll give them far less weight. So that's exactly what I do, and that really gives a much better projection than anyone himself. I mean, you know, let's say there's a, a model that's absolutely fantastic. It's 98% good. There's always some other projection that's 2% good that can help that other one. So I'm just combining everything and using the best elements of each to give me the best fit for what can possibly happen. How many uh, external projection systems are you including in your model? Uh, it's somewhere around a dozen, 14 of them in all. I also do look a little bit at some of the historical numbers, you know, the past three years of experience as well. You know where Nate Silver got his start in projections? He was the originator of the Pocota system, if I'm not mistaken. Even before that, BaseballHQ.com. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, Ron Chandler's very proud of that, as a matter of fact. Uh, your projection system is only part of, of how you need to, or what we need to to use to establish draft strategy and auction strategy in particular, and that is, so far, you have a set of projections of the actual performances, how many home runs, how many strikeouts, etc. But at some point, that has to be converted to dollar values, and that's a separate thing. How does that work for you? So I actually just came out with an article on CBS Sportsline about that, um, and there are many different methods to use, uh, standing gain points and so on and so forth. I use a Z-score method. I basically combine the different categories by the dispersion within a category. Okay, you'll have to explain that a little more. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, people ask the question, is it better to hit 40 homers and 20 stolen bases, or is it 20 homers and 40 stolen bases? Um, it really depends on how variable and how hard it is to get one of the stat in between. So you're looking at standard deviations, and you're looking at uh, standard scores from each. And I basically convert every statistic uh, in, 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 that a player has for each category into a standard score, and then I aggregate the standard scores. So as a theoretical matter, how would you expect your ATC valuations to be different, to vary from systems using other methods like standings, gain, or percentage valuation? Is there, a, is there a, a sort of a predictable skew one way or the other in your values versus the other systems? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in essence, both both of them really do the same thing. They it's about giving a weight to each category. The standing gain points looks at the historical uh, way that categories have flowed, and Z-Score looks at sort of the projections and what could be in the future. It's more forward-looking. Um, from what I've seen, the Z-Score methods give a little bit more weight to the ratio categories, uh, something like batting average or ERA. It gives more weight to that, so maybe it'll give it more focus than the SGPs. The SGP are more counting stats-based. Um, I looked at something the other day uh, that the Birchwood Brothers on Fangraphs uh, did for me uh, where they compared how ATC looked between Z-Score and SGP, and the biggest noticeable difference is that the one-category, one-trick pony guys like Billy Hamilton came out much more highly valued with SGP than with, with Z-Score. Because the 60 or 80 stolen bases or whatever has such a profound impact on the category, especially these days. Right, right. So, you know, they've looked at historical experience at, at what the leagues have done, and they've determined that, you know, the stolen bases were just a huge impact. Um, so it will come up with their Z-score. Maybe in the future has more, uh, more of a muddy uh, outlook towards stolen bases between the players. So it will just get a little bit less weight than the, the FJP model will show. You mentioned Billy Hamilton. Are there any other players who really jump out at you for whom ATC valuations using Z-scores has a fairly profound valuation difference from SGP? I mean, it's, it's the one-trick ponies. We're talking, you know, D, D. Gordon, um, Gerard Dyson, and, and those types of players. Just stolen bases, or if it would home runs also count in that if you had a 50-home run guy like Aaron Judge? Uh, yeah, no, uh, power guys as well, not to the degree of stolen bases, but 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 everyone to that ilk. The, the batting average guys you'll see a little bit better on the ATC uh, projections using the, uh, the Z-score method. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs and CBS Sportsline. And Ariel, uh, we've been talking about how your system, ATC, compares with others. You actually compared them late last season. You looked back on how your ATC compared with some projection systems from a game theory perspective. And before we dig into this, what did you mean when you said it's coming at, at this from the game theory point of view? Well, game theory in general is a way to analyze strategies from a competitive standpoint. It's about players playing a game and taking actions in its purest uh, form. So I'm not doing a statistical analysis here. I'm looking at someone using each projection set would have chosen players last year and then comparing that to how they actually performed. You mean uh, if the projection system can be assumed to have taken player A, B, C down to player X and the other projection system would have chosen a different set of players, you compare how they would have done in a league? Yeah, pretty much. Um, so, for example, let's say the ATC projection systems, I value them and they come out for certain values at a player and I use the steamer projections and I got their values associated with them. I then look at the average auction value for what they went in the NFBC last year and we make some rules. So uh, maybe at the top for a $35 player that I value, maybe we'll give them a, a $2 leeway. They can buy them for, uh, for $37. At the bottom, though, you want a bigger discount. So maybe a $6 player you won't uh, allow a player to, to buy unless they're $2 or lower. And you take a look at what players are in the range for each 
projection system and you look at the profitability for what each of the projection systems is is saying per player and per per group of players at the same price and uh, when you compare them all you can get a good sense of which projection systems are more profitable in the long run okay so it's about uh, it's about the dollar values in aggregate yeah, it's the full season. What I compared is the full season aggregate dollar value that they've accumulated full season. I've asked other projections uh, analysts and experts about this, and maybe I'll ask you as well. Is the projection system or the valuation system, more importantly, is the valuation system in the preseason based on the entire universe of statistics that's available or the universe of, st- universe of statistics that's available for the top 345 players or 260 players or whatever it is who are going to be at the, in the draft? I mean, most people, the way they do it, they only look at the positions that are acquired at the draft. Which, which lets you uh, evaluate players for any different type of format. You know, one-catcher league versus two-catcher league will get a different valuation for a player. So, yes, it usually is restricted to, to that player set. Now, sometimes um, people will throw in a little bit of replacement-level value for someone who's injured uh, to say that, well, if you draft that player, you'll get that stat, but you'll also get some replacement-level stats while he's out. But, yes, in general, it's limited to the number of players that are starting in the format. And then in the postseason analysis of how the projection system did, is that also the case, that you only look at those 345 players? Because I've seen some in the past, and I don't know how yours works, but I've seen some in the past where they compare preseason projections to postseason values because you have the advantage in the postseason values of you know exactly what everybody did, but it's but they take the entire universe of all the statistics for hundreds and hundreds more players, and all the players turn out, or most of the players turn out to have been unprofitable because the, they, the amount of stats that was available is much larger in the postseason retrospective view than it is in the preseason uh, um, predictive view. Yeah, um, I, I know that like the ESPN player rater, they use the entire universe when they're looking at uh, their, their player rater and how good a player is. But yeah, no, in general, uh, I do and most people look at just the limited set of players that would start. And you're right, you would see that most players would be unprofitable or there's a lot of players that, that are going to come from being a $10 player and maybe they would return negative profit. You know, there are players that jump up who you didn't know about who, who were not drafted in the player set. And you see what values they accumulate there. And maybe they, maybe they were projected at minus five and they've jumped up to being a $10 player. So, yes, you will see that, that dynamic happen. Uh, but, but that's fine, um, you know, as long as the relative basis is the same. So the, the postseason retrospective view that you're taking is the same 345 players that were in the preseason? So all the, all the players who weren't drafted are, are just excluded? Um, yes, they're excluded. I mean, you can you can run a line and, t- and see what they they would they would come up with, and you can say whether they're negative two, negative five, negative ten. But yeah, in terms of how you set your replacement level thresholds, you want to include that just at the last starting position player that you see. And yeah, you're going to see players run out um, on average for pitchers. I just took, took a look at this last week. Forty um, percent of the entire value is out the door from preseason to postseason. And that's fine. 
That's fine. Oh, okay, so how did the uh, projection systems comparison turn out for you? Well, um, interestingly, Steamer, who a lot of people talk about as their go-to season, uh, system, actually didn't come out so well in this game theory. Um, now, I, I use Steamer as a part of ATC, and it really is a great baseball system, but if you strictly use them alone for your fantasy purposes, uh, that just wasn't the best idea. Um, other projection systems that I tested, like Mike Podhorser system or Derek Cardi the Bat, uh, they came out doing much better. And uh, luckily, my ATC projection system came out on top. And if you would have used ATC to draft last year, your $260 of auction value would have netted you, uh, preseason alone, about $285 total of player value. So that was a great result for my projections, and uh, I thought this was a cool way to introduce a very new way of comparing systems. And for people who are unaware, what is the Steamer system? Uh, Steamer is a system developed by uh, Jared Cross. Um, He originally did it as a school project, um, but it's a system like any others that um, projects strikeouts by incorporating factors using velocity and things like that. It regresses by age and uh, regression from previous years, and uh, it's just been found to be very, very predictive of of the future season. Um, It's a system that, if you have nothing else, it's a very decent base system to use, and it's freely available on Fangraphs right now. And just one other thing, what about the uh, so-called Marcel the Monkey projections, which are very simple weighted average from the previous three years? Did, did that get included? Or, and if whether it did or not, what do you think of it as a baseline for people to use if they just don't want to spend the money to get yours or to, to get anybody else's? Well, Marcel, the monkey projections, which which are pretty much the simplest thing that it's just a, a very simple formula for how to wait three years past average, doesn't do any kind of uh, incorporating statistics, uh, incorporating uh, uh, factors like velocity or, or bat speed or anything in there. It just looks at three years past history and says, all right, if I was going to do nothing else, I'll uh, project giving more weight to to the most recent year, I'll regress a little bit uh, for age, you know, what would you come up with? It was originally designed as, if you could do nothing else but be a monkey, this is what you would do. Um, it's a fine baseline. Um, it has actually nice predictive power, uh, but there are other plenty of other uh, free systems like Steamer that do a better job. So I wouldn't use it as a baseline. Uh, it's just a nice theoretical thought. I find that uh, when I'm looking at it as a potential uh, fantasy owner, I like using it because I like seeing where the various systems are are diverging from it and by how much. Because to me, that's a flag that I want to look at that player in more detail. The the simple weighted system churns out a projection, and it's generally speaking pretty accurate, what is about 69-70% of the time, depending on how you define it. Then I want to look at your system beside Marcel, and I'm going to say, uh-oh, the ATC system says Joey Votto is going to have a much lower batting average than Marcel projects. I got to go check this out. Um, yeah, no, that's fine. Um, 
uh, the base system that I use is the ATC, and I just see whether a lot of other projection systems have a very big variance for what I'm getting in the middle, which, which means, you know, do the projections themselves have a lot of variances. When I first started doing ATC, Marcel was one of the underlying projections, but after running all the regressions, incorporating other systems, um, they are not statistically significant for me, and I've actually dropped them completely out of my ATC projection algorithm. Uh, so I, I don't even look at them anymore. That's interesting. And before I let you go for the end of the segment, you had a Fangraphs post recently about the long-debated question of scarcity adjustments for catchers. What's your opinion on that always sensitive topic? Well, um, you know, scarcity in general um, is a debatable issue. For middle infielders, you, people are freely to debate it, although I don't think that you need a, a middle infield adjustment anymore. But for catchers, there's no question that you do. I mean, if you were to not adjust the, uh, for, for position scarcity for catchers, you'd only find that about eight or nine catchers would even show a positive auction value. But if you're in a deep 15-team, two-catcher league that drafts 30 catchers, you know, you're going to see a ton of negative values, and you would say, well, this guy's worth negative $8. I'm not buying him. And you'd end up just getting him for a dollar worth your last pick in a draft. So it's clear that you need an adjustment. Now, if you did the favor of assigning $1 to that bottom catcher and then just adjusting everybody up by that amount, it's about a $10 bump, you're actually going to be taking catchers really, really early, um, much earlier than the market is even doing, and that's too much of an adjustment. So what I looked to do in this uh, article was to take a look at what should you actually do with the adjustments. I use a, uh, I go with these scores, and I take a look at what was the three-year historical average for the Z-score level of replacement level players. Um, the catcher market is getting worse and worse. The player pool is getting worse and worse each year. So that Z-score, at, at, which is at the bottom, is getting even lower. I don't want to go down to that level. I use the three-year average. That comes to about a $7 bump on average. So I'm going to roughly bump up catchers on average 7, which is not as much as uh, it would indicate using the full replacement level method, but certainly it gets a very significant bump. So if we assume that JT Real Muto is going to be, by without any adjustment, a $20 catcher this year, you, you value him at 27 uh, Yeah, well, without adjustments, I have him a little bit lower than, than that, but yeah, I, I will roughly give it uh, a $7 bump. Uh, I have Real Muto going for something close to about $23, $24. Okay, so that, that's an interesting point of view. I know people will hear you say it, and they'll understand the logic of it, and I know there are other systems that are more complicated in the math that they apply rather than a simple additive system. They start calculating percentages and, and um, variation and stuff like that, but the end result is, uh, as a very good fantasy baseball player yourself, you're willing to spend the extra 7 bucks to get Real Muto over some other $22 player. Um, well, I mean, look, it, it, it's, 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 it's opportunity cost. You know, if, if you didn't make any adjustment and you got the 30th ranked catcher, you're going to end up with a really crappy statistic. So when you're paying for a catcher, you're paying for the privilege of not getting that 30th ranked catcher. And that privilege of not getting that awful statistics at the bottom is worth something. Um, now, to, just, just to be uh, clear, I don't just 
add $7 on top. I do it within my Z-score valuation method. It's where I set where I think the replacement level should be. And it comes out to something around like the 23rd catcher gets to be worth a dollar. So I will try to get a catcher that's above twenty three the 23rd ranked catcher. I'll still try to get him as a bargain as my uh, projection state. Um, but, yeah, no, it, you definitely need to pay for the privilege of not owning the bottom. Uh, it's just a question of how much you're willing to go. Yeah, and that's the crux of the issue, right? So you have a pitcher, uh, catcher, I'm sorry, you have a catcher who's, True value, according to your calculations and your system, is $16, but whose adjusted value is $23. What, for you, constitutes a bargain? If, uh, it's, if I'm valuing him at $23, and I think that the average cash or bargain available in the market is maybe a dollar or two or three off of that, then for any catcher on my list, I'll try to get more than that. If, if I have Real Muto at 23 and I think the market is paying $3 bargain on top of that, if Real Muto is up to 19 I'll pay for it. And if it, doesn't go, if it goes by that, I'll get out. I'll get somebody on the list for a $3 bargain. Well, Ariel, I fully expected this was going to be a very interesting conversation, and it certainly has been every bit of that. Can you take a little break and come back for another segment of the interview in a few minutes? Absolutely, Patrick. Ariel Cohen writes for Rotographs and CBS Sportsline, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. Jock and Nick, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League and leading off it's the National League Report and our old friend Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to good to be here. Pitchers and catchers are just about ready to report and Drafts are underway. Things are rolling. Yeah, and, and as pitchers and catchers report, we're really not seeing a lot of player news this week, but with uh, all the experts and NFBC drafts that are underway or completed, we are seeing players make some fantasy news, so let's talk about some of those. And we'll start with a couple of players who might be going too high. Uh, first, it seems like Cincinnati starting pitcher Luis Castillo has been a darling of the experts since he had that great second half in 2017, his rookie year. And that led to a top 100 ADP last year, but it was a disappointing season. Uh, Derek Boyd covered Castillo in facts and flukes this week at BaseballHQ.com, and he noted that Castillo's 430 ERA, 122 whip in 2018, not a good performance, but yet Castillo hasn't been downgraded as much as we might expect. His ADP's only down about 20 spots or so. Is Luis Castillo still going too high? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a good question because he really did not have a good season last year. If you had him on your roster, you were undoubtedly disappointed. But uh, what, he, what he says as he looks at Castillo's numbers is he looks poised for a breakout in his age 26 season. The gopheritis is an issue, but last season he made significant control gains, especially in the second half. Uh, pumped in strikes at a high rate through first pitch strikes at a at very regularly, a, a first pitch strike rate of 65% of the second half. So that's very good. Uh, lost a good bit of fastball velocity on the season, 
but built it back up in the second half, ended up averaging 97 miles an hour during the month of September. So whatever he was doing uh, to, to build that velocity back up seemed to be working. Uh, that's very, very good to be throwing 97 miles an hour in September. Uh, made a major pitch mix change in the second half, which seems to have done wonders for him through fewer fastballs, more sliders. Uh, Changeup and slider can both be put away pitches, and uh, but he was using those both more in the second half. So at first glance, it, glance, it appears that he learned how to limit the long ball in the second half. Uh, ground ball rate increased some, really more of a fortunate uh, home run per fly rate, I think, in the second half. So average velocity of fly balls he permitted actually increased from 93.7 miles per hour in the first half to 94.7 in the second half. So uh, we're, we're looking at a, a sort of a mixed bag. He does not have the pro- prototypical physique of a workhorse ace, but uh, remained very healthy, as he has throughout his c- career. Uh, good control, good command, excellent fastball velocity, an elite changeup, and a second uh, swing and miss off-speed pitch. So he has all the tools necessary to take a big step forward in 2019. And certainly the other thing to look at was that second half last year was spectacular. 2.63 ERA, a uh, 3.32 XERA, a 136 BPV in the second half last season. So I, I'm not sure Castillo is going too high. It looks like this could be the breakout year for him. To me, Nick, there are still some cautionary notes here. Dominance rate was down more than one strikeout per nine from 2017 to 2018, and fastball velocity off as well, more than a mile an hour, even counting that second-half rebound in big September. I don't know. I, I'm not so confident about Luis Castillo. I don't know if he'd be in that tier of starting pitchers that uh, might be indicated otherwise. Uh, I'm going to be sounding a cautionary note, I think. Moving on, another player with question marks, San Diego third baseman outfielder Will Myers. Myers went in the top 100 at the Labor Mix Draft this week. Uh, Matt Cederholm covered Will Myers in the Market Pulse column. Is Will Myers a top 100 pick? You know, I think Will Myers, we've, we've got some major issues to look at with Will Myers. The big thing I look at in this, uh, this, uh, in this instance, Will Myers, as you said, was a top 100 pick. Uh, ADP is 110 at this point. We have him ranked at number 222. So 112, uh, ranks difference in terms of where our projections put Will Myers, uh, and where he seems to be going at the moment. Uh, Will Myers seemed to shake off the injury risk tag in 2016 and 2017, and, but was hit hard by injuries in 2018. And, while you can maybe ignore the pre-2018 history, uh, sure enough in 2018 to cause a lot of concern about injury risk. Uh, nerve irritation, oblique strain are, are issues that could repeat. Uh, so the question is, is he going to be healthy enough to get 550 at-bats? He still has the skills for a 2020 season if he does that, but he may be squeezed for playing time. So I think it's very wise to hedge bets on Will Myers. Uh, yes, we buy skills, not roles, but... Uh, we don't want to overpay for skills when they come with a lot of risk. Uh, and the role currently is unclear. So uh, Matt says pass at the current price, and uh, I think that's uh, a wise decision. Interestingly enough, Nick, uh, we talked about Derek Boyd's facts and flukes column. He also covered Will Myers in facts and flukes this week, and uh, he seems to be uh, quite a bit more confident, uh, especially about the uh, stolen base. He says uh, with good health, he thinks Will Myers has uh, $30, 30 stolen base upside. And uh, again, the, the entire question with Will Myers is going to be his health. But uh, it's interesting at, at BaseballHQ.com, sometimes uh, our readers say, why aren't you guys all on the same page on these guys? 
and uh, and our response has always been it's a feature, not a bug, that we have two analysts who look at the same player and come up with different conclusions because that obliges you as a reader to look at both sides and think I've got to decide for myself using my own skills to figure out what's going on here with Will Myers. I, I think it's a it's really an open question, and it largely hinges on whether you think he's going to be able to play a full season. I think absolutely that does. You know what what you're saying about people. Uh, about our writers being on uh, probably different pages or drawing different conclusions, uh, that just gives you an idea that the player you're dealing with has some risk and, and there's uh, no kind of a real consensus as to where that player is going to go. Uh, I used to coach college forensics and we would get uh, two judges in a room and listen to uh, a student's presentation and one judge would say, that's awful. And the other one would say, I liked it. And then we'd turn to the student and say, okay, so you've got two different opinions from two different judges. That's what you're going to get when you get out of the field. Uh, and so that's what you've got on Will Myers. Two different opinions. Skills are good. Health risk uh, is very clearly there. And I think that's why we're looking at Will Myers as a maybe so, maybe not. I think in a hundred, a, a pre 100 pick, Will Myers is too high because of that elf, F health risk. 2017, though, 30 homers, 20 bags. There's some bag upside. It's very, it's very uh, tempting, shall we say. Yes, very tempting, definitely. If you look at that upside, there is some upside there, and it certainly is tempting. And third base, not a strong position this year, not as strong as some of the others. Uh, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my eye on Will Myers is what I'll say about that. Uh, the price may be a little too high now, but uh, if enough people keep saying it's too high, maybe it'll shrink a little bit and he'll turn back into a bit of a, of a justifiable expense. Uh, there's also players out there nick that uh, sort of we we get all excited about them and then gradually they fall off our radar screens and uh, baseball hq this week had a few such examples of guys that seem to have slipped out of the public mind uh, and the first one going back to san diego another outfielder maybe pushing will myers a bit is franchi cordero and uh, ray murphy in the speculator column this week called him one of the possibilities to be this year's javier baez which would be quite a, quite something it would indeed. You know, Franchi Cordero was one of those guys who, who, who certainly has slipped off most folks' screens. He, he makes the list where he says on the strength of a small sample size cheese that he showed us before elbow surgery ended his season last June. And, uh, over the two months prior to that, uh, seven home runs, five stolen bases, 60% contract rate, uh, looked a lot like a Baez starter skill set. Uh, the San Diego outgrade field is very crowded. Uh, so he's got to make, make way and, and make himself a place to play. Uh, health and durability questions are shadows that, uh, we didn't have to factor in when we're looking at that, uh, Baez question. And those are still there. Cordero has a, Cordero has a very good tool set and certainly enough to get him into a conversation about the next, uh, Javier Baez. Uh, the question is, will he have enough health just like Myers? Uh, and, uh, when we see a larger sample size, is it going to, to produce what we saw over two months last season. To me, uh, one of the questions that we have to worry about, I think, here is the 60% contact rate. Uh, Javier Baez managed to do really well with that 60% contact rate, but if Cordero continues to strike out 40% of the time, to me that adds to the injury risk a playing time risk because the uh, San Diego Ball Club might look at a guy and say, brother, you know, you're just striking out too much to keep rallies going and stuff like that. Uh, I think there's a risk there as well. There certainly is. I mean, a contact rate uh, as low as 60% uh, certainly is a, is a huge risk. Uh, that's got to get better because a, 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 uh, a 40% strikeout rate is bad. It shows that pitchers are finding ways to exploit him, uh, and uh, that's going to have to improve if he's going to be the next Javier Baez. 
Another player that uh, really is not so much forgotten about as never thought of in the first place, I think, was Eric Gonzalez, who was kind of a utility infielder for Cleveland the last couple of years. And uh, since he's moved to Pittsburgh, he's been really getting some great reviews, not least from the manager, Clint Hurdle. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's interesting. The guy changes uh, changes teams, uh, has a, a new location, a new manager, and the manager has said, uh, offered really glowing remarks, uh, tossing around terms like dynamic, when he describes him. And uh, uh, there's a hole at shortstop in Pittsburgh with Jordy Mercer letting be let go in the offseason. And so uh, it could be the just midwinter noise we're hearing. But if they're sold in Gonzalez stepping in at shortstop, it could explain their kind of uh, tepid approach to, to signing someone at that position in free agency. So whatever the reason, an ADP in the, in the uh, 660s right now, uh, Gonzalez is uh, someone that, uh, uh, that you might want to take a look at. Uh, it might take some convincing to get you to look at Gonzalez. Uh, he showed only a 0.15 I and 136 bats in 2018, but he did have a 112 PX in 2017. So there is some power there. Uh, speed 117 in 2017 and 113 in 2018. So potential for stolen bases as well. Right now, his only competition for full-time at-bats is rookie uh, Kevin Newman, who had 209 uh, in 91 at-bats last season. And so if Newman doesn't adjust after limited exposure to major league pitching, it could be all Gonzalez. So uh, I think uh, he's worth worth monitoring, certainly in spring training. Not somebody I'd jump on right away. Uh, but if he begins to show up uh, strong in spring training or early in the season, a guy you could probably pick him off your waiver wire. Yeah, it's one of those situations, isn't it, Nick, where this is not somebody you're going to probably roster with the main part of your draft for sure. But depending on your reserve rules and depending on, on those kinds of things, because he's going to start the year probably with full-time playing time, he has an opportunity to succeed. He also has an opportunity to fail, but he has flashed those kinds of skills in the past. The 75% contact rate in 2018, that's not so bad. He doesn't draw a lot of walks. He's never had an OPS over 700, so there are cautionary notes as well. He hits a ton of ground balls, and uh, that can be a help because he's got good foot speed, but it's a definite drawback when it comes to hitting the ball for distance home runs, even the kind of doubles and those kind of extra base hits that generate RBIs. I don't know. This is to me is a really mixed bag and it's definitely uh, really reaching if you if you roster him ahead of, you know, the some of the other alternatives. Yeah, I think so too. I mean he's not a guy I would want to roster uh with, with anything more than a reserve pick or maybe the the final pick in the draft, depending upon uh, how deep the league is. But uh it's more of a watch uh thing on, on Eric Gonzalez and see if he see if he is able to show those skills uh, as he as he heads into what could be a full-time gig for him. Uh, and if he does, someone to pick up maybe before he makes a big splash on the radar. And we should say that the uh, coverage of the, this uh, story with uh, Eric Gonzalez was provided by Rick Green of BaseballHQ.com. He covers the National League Central for playing time tomorrow, which is a, a regular feature at the site where uh, our analysts look at division by division, and they're looking ahead to try to figure out what's going to happen, not looking back to say what has happened. And finally, uh, we also have some coverage in the Batters Buyers Guide this week that we want to look at. Uh, that's Stephen Nickrand, an excellent columnist at Baseball HQ for many years. He's looking at Wilmer Flores, who's over in Arizona now, and the question about that is, in the new home, does he have new opportunity? This column was called Young Targets. These are young players under age 26, I think, with excellent skills. 
you know, Wilmer Flores is a guy that we've liked at Baseball HQ for a while, and he still isn't getting much attention in current drafts. Uh, uh, historical results would seem to indicate that his career is sort of plateaued, but there's real reason for hope with Wilmer Flores, as there has been for the last seven seasons. First time he's really got a shot at full-time work as Arizona's second baseman. Uh, he'll be in a more hitter-friendly park than he was in New York. Uh, posted an 800 OPS versus right-handers for the first time in his career in 2018. Uh, makes excellent contact, an 89% contact rate. Uh, has some has some power, has a little bit of speed. So certainly a guy I think worth worth looking at. Now the question was always in New York, uh, was this guy going to get much playing time? Uh, and now we're, we're hearing questions that Kendall Marty may get some time at second base in Arizona as well. So hard to tell. We've got Flores projected for 18 home runs, 76 RBIs, and a 282 batting average. Uh, and as low as he's going in drafts at, at the moment, that's a $15 player, and that's fairly valuable if he gets those 500 at-bats that we're projecting. Yeah, and that's the big if, isn't it? But uh, I was looking at his last couple of years, which add up to about 670 or so plate appearances, 29 home runs over the two years, uh, 100-some RBIs. So definitely the potential is there if he can get the if he can get the plate appearances. This is somebody who could really score, uh, and he's not going to be a, a huge cost, I don't think. Although, boy, uh, this is something else I've noticed about Wilmer Flores over the last week or 10 days or so, Nick, there's a lot of interest from the experts. I read a lot of the uh, expert websites, uh, the uh, fantasy baseball websites, and Wilmer Flores is not exactly off the radar here. So his ADP, his cost could be creeping up, even though he hasn't done anything to earn it, if you know what I mean. Right, very definitely. But the other thing to look at with Wilmer Flores is over the last four years, batting averages of 263, 267, 271, 267, those are, those are very good batting averages. And so in today's game, when you've got a, uh, a batting averages dropping below 250 to get 20 home runs out of a guy, uh, those are fairly solid. They are, and you have to keep the context in mind. Uh, you and I are both old enough to remember where you look at a guy batting 267 and you'd go, nah, I don't know if I'm interested. But nowadays, 267 is practically the second coming of Ty Cobb. That's right. It is indeed. <laughs> Wilmer Flores in the labor mixed uh, went 336th overall, so nine picks from the very, very end of the draft. And I, I think if you can get him at that price, I think that's a fantastic opportunity. Yeah, I think so. At that price, that's a wonderful opportunity for a guy who could be very productive. All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out. Do appreciate it, and we'll catch up with you again next week. We should have some games underway. We should indeed. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchup analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here. Well, some big news broke right after we finished recording our American League segment last week. Francisco Lindor, as everybody now knows, be out with a calf strain. They say at least seven weeks, as many as nine. I've read some people suggest it could be longer still. This is obviously a huge loss for Cleveland, but also a big event in the fantasy community because of what it does to drafts and auctions. Uh, Tom Kephart wrote this up for Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com. Where does the Lindor calf strain injury leave the Indians, and who's going to take advantage of the vacated playing time? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, how, you, you don't replace a guy like Lindor, obviously. I'm looking at his year-over-year uh, -year numbers, and he was just improving every year. He had his best year last year, uh, 38 homers, 25 steals. Um, and uh, 
Cleveland traded a guy who, who I always thought was kind of interesting. He had some warts, a guy named Eric Gonzalez to Pittsburgh, and I, I think he probably would have been the backup uh, shortstop. The Indians look really thin right now. They're, I'm looking at their their uh, depth chart over at Baseball HQ, and I, I'm not seeing the replacement. We have a bunch of guys projected for 5% playing time along with Lindor at short. I think we may be a little high on him right now. He's at 85%. I might bump him down to 80 um, this is not a good thing for fantasy owners or uh, or Cleveland. Uh, this the, it, it could set off. If Cleveland gets off to a bad start, I could see a whole chain of events that uh, has them doing, uh, you know, maybe not even competing in the second half. So it's an interesting situation to watch. It is, and uh, we talked about uh, Eric Gonzalez, Nick and I, when we were talking about the National League as a potential sleeper in Pittsburgh. So, boy, oh, boy, if he turns out to be really terrific, uh, Cleveland's going to really rue having traded him. And I guess we're looking at guys like uh, Yu Cheng Chang. He's a uh, prospect shortstop. Then we have journeymen like Ryan Flaherty and Max Moroff, but these guys are of very little fantasy interest. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Chang is interesting. I, I I think there's questions as to whether he can field the position, and obviously he's an inexperienced rookie. So, uh, you know, you buy your ticket, you take your chances. But uh, this is not the Cleveland team we're used to seeing right now. Something that Tom Kephart mentioned that I hadn't occurred to me is the possibility of Jose Ramirez, who's been at second and third the last couple of years, but he has some experience at shortstop. He could go over and play shortstop in Lindor's absence. That would add to, to his value because he'd then be second, third, short, depending on your league ramifications and uh, and rules. And that might give an opportunity for them to find somebody to fill in at third base, including possibly Ryan Flaherty. Yeah, you're right. Um, again, and we're talking about Flaherty here. He's he's kind of a journeyman. He's had a, he's had a few moments, but uh, basically, that seems to me um, to be to be opening uh, opening up one hole to fill a number. I wouldn't be surprised to see Cleveland go out like Tom suggested and 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 look for a a veteran shortstop if there's some available still on the market. Obviously, I don't think they're going to be in the uh, the Manny Machado sweepstakes, but. Uh, um, you know, you got to look for defense behind that pitching staff right now because that seems to be the strength of their team. Yeah, they're going to definitely be a run prevention team and, and with Lindor out all the more. Hey, how about Troy Tulowitzki when he gets cut? Yeah, he's uh, he's obviously a Yankee, but I can see him getting pushed out of there pretty quickly. Well, stranger things have happened. I guess uh, the question is, how long will Lindor be out? And uh, I'll just pose this one to you. Calf strain. This is something that really affected Josh Donaldson up here in Toronto for a couple of years. It it seems like a nothing kind of injury, but it's a really serious thing for conditioned athletes. And I wonder if even after Lindor comes back, let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say he's back just after opening day, maybe the first week of the second week of the season. Is he still going to be a, like a 25 stolen base guy with this calf problem? Yeah, good question. And, and let's talk about the recurring aspect of that injury, too. As you mentioned with Donaldson, this is a guy who plays shortstop. What are the, what's the likelihood that that injury can recur? So uh, this this looks pretty murky right now. Well, we haven't had much other news. It's been a real slow-moving free agent market, trade market. 
other than Jerry DePoto, of course, but he's been quiet the last couple of weeks. Uh, plenty of interesting players who could be on the breakout, and I'd like to discuss a few of them. Uh, Bob Berger at BaseballHQ.com is one of the writers of Facts and Flukes, where they do performance validation, and he took a look at Minnesota starting pitcher Jose Barrios, and he is an interesting guy, Jock. Some experts have him as a target for the draft. Others say he's going to be overdrafted and you need to avoid him. What does Bob Berger see with Jose Barrios? Yeah, offhand, I don't do a lot of draft over leagues, so I'm not I'm not um, certain where Barrios' uh, ADP lies right now. But and I and I don't own him in any of my keeper leagues. But I'm looking at his chart right now, the the chart that uh, the Baseball HQ chart that uh, Bob presented in his Fax Fluke, and these are some impressive t- trends. Both his innings pitched, he's a healthy guy. Um, his strikeouts are rising. His swinging strikes are rising. His first pitch. Uh, his first pitch strikes were, were terrific last year, 64%. Um, his ground ball rate has risen from 38 to 43 to 50 over the last three years. This is a really intriguing pitcher. I would I would not be surprised by the people who are who are targeting him in their drafts right now. Well, I was monitoring the uh, labor draft, the mixed auction, or I'm sorry, the mixed draft league that went on a couple of nights ago, uh, earlier in the week, and. Jose Brios went in the 15th pick at the turn in the fourth round, and he was right behind Mike Clevenger and right in front of Zach Granke. So that's uh, that's pretty good company to be keeping, and uh, arguably uh, maybe even better than guys who went in the middle of that round, James Paxton and Steven Strasburg, significant injury risks. So maybe Jose Brios, if you're planning on getting Jose Brios, be prepared to ante up. Yeah, definitely. He seems like a sleeper to me, particularly on a on a Minnesota team who who I think is going to rebound at least a little bit last this year. I mean, after last year, I don't think see how they can get worse, and their personnel is much better than it played last year. Yeah, and Barrios coming into the uh, uh, sort of prime of his career at this point because he's just twenty five, I think, coming into the season. So we typically look for that sort of career spurt at age twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven. And I know if you're listening out there, you say, wait a second, the first year is always the best year. I don't know that that's the case with pitchers, but everything about Jose Brios, as you said, a jock seems to be trending in the right direction. The hit rate and strand rate have normalized over the three years, so we're getting a clearer picture of what his true capabilities are. A 379 expected ERA, a 384 real ERA, so basically he's pitching to his talent. Last year, a $16 pitcher in 5x5. The year before that, a $12 pitcher in 5x5. And the projections call for uh, something in that neighborhood, maybe even a little better, $18, $19 this year. So, uh, again, ante up. Yeah, and uh, again, you, you look at it, the, the innings pitch goes right along with the trend trend lines. He's healthy, um, 170 innings in uh, uh, 2016, at least for his MLEs, 185 last year, 192 innings in 2018 with Minnesota. That's workhorse standard right there. And it's hugely valuable because with the, with a decent strikeout rate, I think his DOM rate is something around a strikeout per inning. So you're looking at pretty close to 200 strikeouts and 200 innings pitched, which means, of course, not only the strikeouts, but the good decimals, ERA and whip around 381.15, something like that. You always want a guy who's going to get those good decimals in a lot of innings because it's so much more helpful than getting those same decimals in 120 innings. Yeah, it sounds like you and I are both in on uh, Jose Barrios. 
Well, it depends on the price as always, but uh, I've also, I'd also like to talk about uh, a couple of offensive players on the Twins, Byron Buxton and Miguel Sano. Uh, Buxton has been something of a like a touchstone for here's not what to do about drafting players, and Sano's just been so so shot through with bad luck. Where are you on Buxton and Sano for 2019? Well, I like both of these names for a couple of reasons. Um, they're, they're both still young. Buxton is 25. And when you think about what Buxton could do with stolen bases if he's healthy, um, the, the Twins aren't going to ask him to hit at the top of the order. They're not going to put that kind of pressure on him. Uh, um, I think at the bottom of the order, Buxton can be a, a 35 stolen base, 15 home run guy, uh, still waiting to happen. Um, he... Uh, he had injury issues last year, and I'm never gonna I'm I'm never gonna just dump a, a guy with the talent of Buxton. This was a, a consensus number one prospect for a number of years. I'm never gonna dump him uh, um, because of injuries. If I can hold on to him in my keeper league, I will. I own him. Um, I'm going to keep owning him, and uh, his batting average is, is is never gonna help me. But I still think that 35 stolen base, 15 home run guy is is uh, is uh, is going to be pretty important for most fantasy teams. I mentioned the labor mixed draft that uh, took place earlier this week. Byron Buxton was drafted at pick 200, so halfway through the 14th round. I think that translates to like a nine or ten dollar player. I think I'd I think I'd gamble at ten bucks. I'm not so sure I'd gamble at 15. Yeah, that's right. It really depends on how um how much you can get him for. Uh, now, reportedly, Buxton's arrived at spring training with 20 plus extra pounds of muscles in an effort. To, as he says, avoid injury. I don't know how that works. I hope he does. But uh, um, if your draft is in mid-spring training or at the end of spring training or afterward even, and Byron Buxton is still healthy, I might go the extra buck. Yeah, I think the thing about adding lean muscle mass is that it's generally perceived as helpful, but it is extra weight to carry. And so it all depends on where it's located. Did he add it all in the upper body so his legs are the same and have to carry the extra weight? There's a lot of those kind of things that we're going to have to keep an eye on and try to figure out from the from the uh, reporting and stuff that we see during spring training. Uh, I mentioned the, the labor draft. Miguel Sano went right after Byron Buxton, the very next pick. Uh, Steve Gardner from USA Today, our mutual friend, took Sano in the middle of the 14th round as well. Where do you stand on Sano? Yeah, I'm pretty much in the same place at Sano. He's still young. He's 26, had a lot of injury problems, and he had some some off-field problems too. I mean, I uh, somebody hopefully talked to this guy because his career is at a crossroads, but uh, if you look at the power and even the batting average, I've always looked at, at Miguel Sano as a as a if he's healthy a, a a much a much better version of Joey Gallo. He has he he has Gallo's power, or if he doesn't, he's just a tick off. He's gonna he's gonna post a better batting average. I would love to see Miguel Sano get 550 at bats because I think he's a he's a 40 home run guy waiting to happen. Um, this is probably a make or break year for him, just like Buxton. So we're gonna find out. 2017, I think he hit in the mid 260s, which is in the as Nick and I both laughed about earlier. Uh, this is considered good in in this day and age of 225 batting averages. Not so good a few years ago, but at if he could hit 265 and and swatch you 35 home runs, which uh, I agree with you is well within the realm of possibility. If he gets 600 plate appearances, all of a sudden you're looking at a 2021 dollar player who's going for barely half that. Yeah, that's that's a valuable guy. I'm I'm not obviously I'm not I'm not certain. I don't think anyone is about the the 260 batting average. But heck, if he hit 250, which is 
basically league average. It's better than league average right now with respect to batting averages um, and hit 35 home runs. I'll definitely take that. He's got to stay healthy. It's, it's, it's a similar situation to Buxton's. Um, that's a pretty good twins lineup. He could drive in a lot of runs if he can stay healthy for the year. I, the, the power is legit. All you have to do is look at the, the power index and the expected power indexes over all the times he's played. It's there. He's got to stay healthy to, to let it come out. One thing about the batting average, 229 expected batting average in 2017. That was the 264 year, and he overshot it by quite a bit. Then last year, in very limited uh, plate appearances, his XBA was 200, and he hit 199. So uh, a cautionary note there because uh, Miguel Sano strikes out a lot. He hits the ball hard when he makes contact, but 40% strikeout rates are depressive on batting average, and they're really depressive on counting stats because you can't drive in a run striking out. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's yeah, you, you, you definitely buy your ticket and take your chances with a player like Sano, and there's a lot of them these days in uh, playing Major League Baseball. In Toronto, the Blue Jays acquired Freddie Galvis. You and I talked about that, and you said at the time that you thought Galvis was going to play full-time at shortstop, mostly for defensive reasons, on what is going to be a pretty awful team. And it sounds like that's the direction Toronto is heading. But now there's a new upshot. We're seeing some reporting that Devon Travis, the guy who had been playing second base when he wasn't hurt, and Lourdes Gurriel, who played shortstop in second, might be grabbing outfield gloves in spring training to add to some of that competition as well in Toronto. May, they may be looking at more pitchers and more super utility type guys. Not a lot of certainty in the Toronto outfield jock. And with this news, even second base could be up for grabs in some kind of uh, playing time triangle. Christopher Olson looks at the American League East for playing time tomorrow. What's he seeing going on north of the border? Um, yeah, this this was an interesting uh, playing time tomorrow that uh, that Chris put out. I had I had not stayed in touch with uh, with Toronto over the last week uh, since you and I talked. But uh, looking at their outfield, a lot of unproven names there: Teoscar Hernandez and, and uh, Billy McKinney. They've shown flashes. Uh, um, even uh, uh, Randall Grichik, uh, big power guy, he's he's consistently up and down. This seems like the way to go for a rebuilder like Toronto. Most of the things I'm seeing project Gurriel as the second base starter, and I think that makes sense. Um, Travis, uh, Devin Travis is older. He's more injury susceptible. He seems like the perfect guy to try in a utility role. Um, perhaps this is a way to get his bat into a lineup and keep him healthy, maybe play him four or five times a week. And if he hits, I can see him taking at bats away from some of uh, Toronto's inconsistent and unproven outfielders. Uh, and it's a way to let these guys all play a little bit, uh, maybe you know set up some trade possibilities later in the in the year because this team isn't going anywhere right now. And this is what rebuilding clubs do. Yeah, get a guy a bunch of plate appearances, hope that he stays healthy, and, and then try to wheel him for some kind of uh, useful chip later on in the season. The problem I see with Devon Travis, and maybe the opportunity as well, is he's a really bad defensive player at second base. I can't tell you how many times I've seen him mishandle routine plays. He, he tries too hard to make fancy plays and makes errors. He's a really poor second baseman, and I wonder... Do you think that translates well or poorly to the outfield? It's a it's on the defensive spectrum. It's supposed to be easier, but if if you if you're prone to losing your concentration, it's a lot easier to lose it in the outfield when you're standing around there all by yourself than it is in the infield, where at least every so often somebody talks to you. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm pretty clueless as to how um, he uh, he might do in the outfield, but uh, I think it's one of the reasons he's probably not going to get regular at bats at second base. Guriel is not uh, a, a Gold Glove infielder, but he's passable. He can play. He can play both shortstop and second base, and and not completely embarrass himself. Uh, I'm not as familiar with Devin Travis as you are, but if he's as bad as you say, I I think Guriel gets most of the second base at bats it also tells me that if Devin Travis can't make it in the outfield his career may be at a crossroads he's going to have to stay healthy and hit um to to keep getting uh his his 300 uh 300 400 at bats that he's been getting recently and and it's interesting because those at bats have been limited due to injuries he 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 was Toronto's regular second baseman obviously I don't know if he can hold up to that any longer and I'm not sure the Blue Jays do either yeah, that's an excellent point. He's never peaked beyond 410 at-bats in a season, and he was pretty good that year. He's a $13 player in 5x5, five five, but uh, ever since then, it's been 185, 357, so he's a part-time player due to injury, and that's always a risk from fantasy point of views as well. So, I don't know. Of the three of these guys, honest to gosh, Jock, I think I'd take Lourdes Gurriel over both Galvis and uh, Travis. I agree. I've, I've seen Lourdes play a little bit. He reminds me a little of his older brother. He's a kind of a lean, wiry guy. He's got more pop than his older brother. I think uh, uh, I like his bloodlines. I like his athleticism. Um, he's young and he's healthy. I'll take those guys anytime over the Devin Travises of the world. Yeah, the uh, the Gurriel line over just one year, he came up partway through the year, about 250 at-bats, and he batted 281, and his expected batting average was about 260. So on batting average alone, he looks like he might be worth something. And he had 11 home runs in that limited experience. So 11 and 250. So if you give him like 600, all of a sudden you're looking at a mid-20s home run potential. I don't see that out of uh, Freddie Galvis for sure. And I don't see it with uh, Devon Travis either. Yeah. And when you're talking about a, a young guy who can who can still improve, I mean, he's 25 years old. Um, he... Uh, like you said, he can he can he can hit for a little pop and at a middle infield spot. Particularly, he qualifies both at second and shortstop. Gives you a little flexibility in your fantasy roster as well. For sure. Uh, finally, Jock, Seattle, another team that's rebuilding and another team that has playing time questions in the immediate future. Uh, as part of the rebuild, the general manager Jerry Depoto took on a couple of off-season contracts. Uh, Edwin Encarnacion and Jay Bruce, and I'm pretty sure he was hoping to take them on and then and flip them somewhere else very quickly because he didn't want to pay Encarnacion those millions or Jay Bruce those millions either, but those trades haven't happened. And I know you look at this because you cover the American League East for playing time tomorrow. When we're trying to figure out who plays where in Seattle, and we kind of both know Encarnacion and Bruce are not part of their future, how does it affect the playing time of them and especially of Domingo Santana, who I thought might be a guy to grab given the opportunity to play in Seattle, but is is that still going to be the case? Yeah, it's hazardous to predict anything in Seattle while Jerry DePoto is GM since he can make one's analysis obsolete pretty much in a nanosecond. But uh, it, it, like you said, he needs to flip at least one of these names quickly or the playing time for the younger names like uh, Domingo Santana and and even Ryan Healy, who was the regular first baseman most of last year, and uh, and another guy Dan Fogelback, they're really left in limbo right now. You're almost um, you're almost left looking at playing time over the long haul because you have no idea what what opening what the opening day lineup's going to be unless Depoto just dumps these guys because um, 
Encarnacion and Bruce are gonna they're gonna play if just to maintain their value. And if they play, someone's gonna sit. The only places they can play, uh, Encarnacion is pretty much limited to DH and a little bit of first base. Bruce can play first base uh, and and left field. Um, so guys like uh, um, Santana and Healy are uh, are you just wonder where they're gonna be, uh, how much they're gonna play in the in the early weeks of the season. I sure do. I'm very convinced that Malik Smith and uh, Mitch Haniger are locks for most of the playing time in uh, in the outfield. And then you are looking at a at a big sort of mumble with Bruce and Domingo Santana and even uh, some lesser players that might filter in out there. I don't see how this works out. I, uh, I'll, I'll say you mentioned Ryan Healy. I see Ryan Healy as not being threatened right now. I, I see him, and I noticed the Baseball HQ depth chart has him at 85% of the first base opportunity, and I think that's about right. I, I, I know Vogelback has been the outside guy looking in, but I also think there's a reason for that. He hasn't impressed at the major league level, and, highly, and Healy hasn't been uh, you know, the second coming of Paul Goldschmidt, but Healy's been you know, pretty good. Yeah, um, and 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 I certainly didn't mean to imply that he, that Vogelback was the equal of Healy. I think you're right. I th- I think one area where they're where they're really different is Vogelback should never be on a major league baseball field. I've watched him in spring training several years, and he is one of the slowest, worst defensive players I have ever seen in my life. And that's just anecdotally. And when you can say that to yourself anecdotally, you 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 know the, the player loses me at that point. Uh, Healy, I'm really mixed on. He's <laughs> for two years in a row, his first two full seasons, he started off and his power looks locked in and he looks terrific. He, In fact, I think the forecaster two years ago had him at an upside of 35 home runs, which I agreed with. But he tends to 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 lose his consistency in the second half and he uh, his, his pitch selection is not that great. He barely got over 200 at-bats in the second half when Seattle last year decided to move Robbie Cano over there. Um, I, I, I think you're right. I, I think Ryan Healy still has a future in Seattle. The problem is while Encarnacion is there and Bruce is there, first base is going to be one of the options for those guys. So um, Healy may be spelled more often early on than, uh, than uh, we might think. Yeah, I don't. I don't honestly see uh, uh, Encarnacion threatening anybody at first base. I think you're exactly right when you say he's going to be the DH, and pretty much that's it. But I can still see them trying to move him along because if they have an opportunity to use that DH spot, all of a sudden now you've got more opportunities to mix and match. Give Bruce some at bats up there. Vogelback, if you're still interested in seeing if he's ever going to be anything, that that opens up a lot of doors. It looks like the Encarnacion. Uh, acquisition is really what's blocking up the entire system and if they can figure out a way to get rid of Encarnacion's contract or part of it even just to get him off the roster I think it opens up a lot of possibilities. Yeah it's an interesting dilemma too when you think about uh, how many how many teams are rebuilding or flat out tanking this year how many of those people are going to want a 36 year old designated hitter whose performance uh, last year was it was still decent but it was a little bit off older performances they're not going to give up that much for that name and I don't and and when a guy like that comes over to your club he's going to suck up at bats if you're rebuilding do you really want to give a guy like that at bats and 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 you almost have to wait for an injury from a contender because those are the those are the guys or a, or a wild card contender anyway. Those are the guys who are going to be interested in at bat like Edwin Encarnacion, and I don't see as many of those this year as I did last year, and the numbers seem to be dwindling. No, you're right about that. Uh, 
his skills, when you look at them in the context of his last few years, were actually fairly close to what he's been doing all along. But I, I agree with you entirely that what Seattle has to hope for is that somebody who's got aspirations in the American League to make the playoffs is willing to take Encarnacion on because of injury or because of underperformance somewhere in their lineup because uh, otherwise I just don't see anybody taking Encarnacion at his age. Uh, is, uh, like I said, I don't think his... Uh, immediate previous track record is that much to worry about a little maybe but the contract is definitely something to worry about and clubs are just getting smarter about that kind of thing he's got a few years left to run on the deal you know and nobody wants to pick up that giant tab for a declining player yeah and uh like i said if you're if you're rebuilding you want to use that dh slot to rest players to move people in and out to move people around to see what people can do at different positions you don't want it clogged up by N1 Encarnacion if you don't have a chance to make the playoffs. And I think we can agree we don't think see any path forward for the Seattle Mariners to make the playoffs. Uh, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out again. Maybe we'll have a little more actual news to talk about next week, but one way or another, we'll be together in seven days' time. Sounds good, PD. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen. But right now, it's time in the show and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Roto Gaming column, Ryan Bloomfield reviews his inaugural foray into the labor mixed draft. In Playing Time Tomorrow, Dan Marcus looks at the shape of rosters in the National League East, including bullpens in Philadelphia and Washington, the Mets outfield, and the Braves rotation. And in Facts and Flukes, Robert Berger assesses the performances of Elvis Andrews, Kevin Kiermeyer, Tyler Glasnow, and more. And those are just three articles. There are dozens more. We're putting them up there like 40, 45 a week. A small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in Facts and Flukes, news updates in Playing Time Today, roster forecasting in Playing Time Tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis plus tools like the player projections, the daily dashboard, our leading indicators. This is all content and tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Ariel Cohen. From Rotographs and CBS Sportsline, Ariel, welcome back. Thanks a lot, Patrick, for having me. Last week on the pod, Todd Zola and I discussed his proposition that taking an ace starting pitcher early might not be the optimal way to build a fantasy roster. His point was that the drop-off in the two secondary counting stats for batters, RBIs and runs, was greater in the early rounds than a similar drop-off in one counting stat, strikeouts, for pitchers. You posted to Rotographs this week that you disagree with Todd. And uh, what is the main source of your disagreement? Well, um, I'm, I'm glad I'm stating the exact opposite of Todd. Uh, but I'm actually fully not disagreeing with him. I, I mean, Todd certainly knows his stuff. Um, but, of course, valuation should take into account all five categories, not just, just the two. Um, but my argument was more of on a historical basis. It's about return on investment. And I found that... Uh, by selecting the top-tiered aces, so we're talking the top 10, maybe 12 pitchers, 
at the end of the season, they held most of their value, whereas the entire middle pack of pitchers, talking about a $25 pitcher all the way down to five, lost most of their value. And then at the very bottom, that range of pitchers had a higher percentage chance of a player jumping up and earning big profit. And, of course, since they're valued so low, if they stink, it's pretty easy to cut them and just replace them with somebody else on the waiver wire. So as an optimization exercise, your best return on investment, you are best distributing your pitching dollars towards an ace and then at the bottom and nothing else in between. Now, so for an auction, it's a little bit more easy to do. You have a starting pitcher budget, and you can distribute it as you wish. At a draft, uh, it could be a little bit of an issue if some hitters come up that are just too good a value to pass up. Um, but, again, I'm suggesting the, an ace is the way to go, so I would not go a couple of rounds this year before getting that ace anchor. In the article, you seem to discover something that Ron Chandler has been saying for years, that in auctions, all the big dollar players are most likely to generate a loss, and that stands to reason. If you bid $35 on a guy, he's more likely to come up short than if you bid $3 on a guy, because there's only so far you can fall. And why isn't this a bit of information more of an inducement to the, to the spread the risk roster profile, whether we go for an ace or not? Um. Well, it's not all of the high-value players that are not returning it. It's uh, the, the top-tiered aces, what I found, just do fine. So I would say it's more like Ron Chandler's Santana plan, where you pick an ace and then nothing else until your stars and scrubs, or maybe it's called a modified Labadini or something like that. Um, so in that sense, it's not a stars and scrubs method. It's a just top guy and then rest on the bottom. And I'm going to return to a question I asked earlier because I think it raises a point about auction theory. If even a few owners all hold off on bidding until the cheaper mid-level players, they're all going to have to overbid each other. And that could happen if everybody was doing uh, or if half the owners were doing the same thing with their pitching. So a bunch of them take their uh, ace starters and then they hold off till the end. But if they all hold off to the end, then doesn't that mean the end players, those one, three, five dollar pitchers are all going to be bid up and, and somewhat offset the, uh, the value advantage of the ace? Well, you know, in general, you want to put your dollars towards the most profitable assets, and it's certainly a lot better if nobody is doing the same plan as you. I mean, if you're doing something different than everybody else, you're going to have advantage right there, especially if you think that's more profitable. But if everybody is doing the same game as you and playing in the same space, that's okay. You just have to be better relative to everybody else. So like I said more, if, if you have to pay on average $5 more to get that ace, and everybody's doing that, that's fine. You just want to be at the part of the pack that's paying only a $1 premium instead of a 5 And that might be the very, very top base. It might be in the middle. Um, but it's okay to pay, to pay that premium as long as you're relatively in the middle of the pack. And the same goes throughout the draft, in the middle and at the bottom. As long as you are getting a better relative bargain to everybody else or a better uh, uh, relative loss than everybody else, that's fine. Ariel, you have a really active and interesting Twitter presence, at uh, ATCNY. Uh, a few days ago, you said Bryce Harper will go to San Francisco, and you added, book it. You sound very confident. Why? <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, 
Well, I, I try to keep my Twitter feed informative, educational, but you know, occasionally I'll throw in a little bit of entertainment. So this one was a little bit more towards that end. Um, you know, no, nobody will really know where Harper would end up. And certainly Washington has the money to do so, and Philadelphia is looking to get one of those big uh, big bopper guys to come with them. Um, but I think that if Harper takes a pillow deal or even uh, a cesspitous type, three years, $110 million, $10 million buyout with opt-outs after every year, um, I think that San Francisco will be doing that deal. Um, and Harper loves playing in San Francisco. He's a big fan of Buster Posey. Uh, I mean, San Francisco is the team that doesn't want a full rebuild. They got Longoria and McCutcheon last year. They were the team that brought in Barry Bonds way back, and this somehow feels similar. Um, their new GM is a little bit uh, of the aggressive type, and I'd say that the owners of the Giants, one thing, they're very keen on filling the ballpark on a daily basis. Um, some other teams might be okay with tanking, but uh, their owners I don't think are. Um, they have a new ballpark sponsor, Oracle. I'm not sure how that plays in, but I think that uh, the Giants really want to fill seats. And there's no better way than getting that superstar. So I think the Giants are okay with paying a short-term high annual value for a contract. They just don't want a long-term. So I know there was a report that Harper said he doesn't want to take a short-term deal, but if somehow they can meet in the middle and work out a very interesting contract, I think they both have mutual interest in each other. I'm curious what you think from a player valuation point of view. If we look at their relative fantasy values, Manny Machado is a much more valuable fantasy player, and I know that there's not an exact parallel, but it's a pretty significant difference in the valuations that I've seen Machado to Harper, and yet Harper seems to be wanting Machado's uh, same level of salary and contract terms. Is Bryce Harper overvaluing himself? Um. Well, I mean, I, I think I think all the players are overvaluing themselves. I personally think that Harper is a far better skilled player than Machado. To me, Machado is not a, an elite player. He's just a very, very good player. I think that Harper has a better raw, true talent than him. So I, I don't think he's overvaluing himself. I think he also um, is with Scott Boras, who wants to make a name for getting the biggest contract possible. So it's it's more of an agent than marketing play than anything else. I, I wouldn't say overvaluing. The last couple of years, Bryce Harper has showed up as a negative, net negative uh, defensive guy. Does that factor in here? I mean, if I was an owner, that factors into me. Uh, he's really only had one full, really, really good year, and I wouldn't give a, a three hundred million dollar contract to a player that's only showed it once. So would you not give a really big uh, contract to either of Machado or Harper? Personally, uh, I, I wouldn't. Um, I, I think there's a lot more profitability from something uh, from your own players and from some lower-priced free agents. I mean, if you look at the dollar per war, um, you know, this $300 million type, uh, type contract, uh, you know, after seven years from now, is going to be completely awful. Uh, you can make this up within your system or with a much lower priced free agent to make me not want to to spend on, on these top guys. Well, where does your ATC valuation system rank these two players, Machado and Harper? Harper, I have valued at about the eighth outfielder at about a twenty eight dollar 
NFBC value. Uh, Machado, I'll quickly look that up. Machado, uh, roughly the same. I have a little bit higher than Harper for this year at $29. So, um, yeah, I, the, the ATC system does like Machado better for this, uh, this current year. But given what we know about the variability of the projections and the variability of uh, of the valuation system, they're essentially the same, right? Sort of a second round type guy. Yeah, that, that's a wash. I'd say they're roughly early to mid second round players. You had a Twitter poll that asked where your Twitter followers think is the best place to draft in a fifteen team snake draft. Nearly half of the respondents said they'd like to pick first or second as opposed to some of the other alternatives. I think this is important for leagues that have the Kentucky Derby type seating or that otherwise allow owners some control over where they draft. What research is there about the correlation between draft slot and league success? I haven't seen much research on this. I'd imagine that CBS or ESPN or any of the fantasy providers would have more. But from what I've seen, uh, there is a small correlation with earlier draft picks being more successful at winning in the long term, or I should say maybe later draft picks are worse. Uh, the first half of a draft are pretty close to each other in terms of winning potential. Um, I've even seen number, slots number two to four, maybe even a slight edge over number one, and then dropping off slowly after that. Um, it's small correlation. Um, if you're playing football, fantasy football, this correlation is much stronger that the top is, is the earlier picks are much better for your success. Here's the obvious follow-up, Ariel. Where would you choose to pick if you had your choice? So as a default, if nothing else, I would choose one, two, three, four, five to the end because you're going to rack up the most value by picking earlier. Um, it, that's just the way that the values go. The only reason that I would change is if I saw a certain spot that my values compared to where the ADP is in a particular year has a big disconnect. Um, for this year, I don't like drafting in the number three slot. Most people are taking Jose Ramirez, who I have valued a little bit lower, so I'm more willing to draft at the number four or five or six than number three. That's the only spot I'm moving down, but otherwise I'll just go straight KDS one, two, three, four to the end. I think Ray Murphy's going to kill me if I don't mention this, but Baseball HQ had a research study a few years ago that looked at this question, and I think the first play, the first slot was always the best slot, but the uh, distribution of it otherwise was pretty random, as I recall, and of course a lot of it depends on who's doing the drafting, but they looked at uh, you know a whole bunch of NFBC drafts or something like that, and it came out relatively random, and there might even have been a slight bump at, at either of the turns as opposed to the middle, but I don't remember exactly. Interesting. Uh, well, I, I haven't seen that. Um, I, I would think that for baseball, there really shouldn't be too much correlation. I, I just saw one quick study that showed a little bit of a tail toward the end, uh, the, the wheel being also on the low end. You asked on Twitter whether projections should be adjusted now for the possibility that the National League will adopt the DH this season. How would such a change affect your ATC projections, and how would it affect them? Well, that was a thought question. Um, obviously, it was a hot topic that uh, there could be a universal DH, and uh, as far as quickly as this year, David mentioned, um, it, it's a great thought exercise. And for someone who deals a lot with risk and models, I like to break things down into frequency and severity. What is the probability that this would actually happen? And given that it happened, what would the effect be? 
as far as what, what would it be, um, we would have to adjust some playing time for some of the National League's best pinch hitters or fourth outfielders or whatnot. Uh, maybe if they're projected for a 350 at bat projection, maybe I would tick it up to 450. Um, we'd probably have to adjust down the run environment for pitchers. Um, you would see NL pitchers' ERA going up. Uh, I guess technically AL pitchers slightly up as well, um, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, but e- let's say there's a hundred at bat difference for those pinch uh, for those uh, top pinch hitters. Then you would have to multiply it by the actual chance of that happening, which I don't know, in my estimation is probably about two three percent. So if you multiply that hundred at bat difference by three percent, we're talking about giving three at bats. Right, right now, uh, on Feb- in uh, February 15th, uh, three at-bats to, to those players. So it's really not worth doing. Uh, it's just something interesting to think about. And as a projections guy, I kind of hope that it does happen because I would love that challenge, and I think that I personally would have a leg up on everybody else, uh, but it's probably not likely to happen this year. You made a bet with fantasy tout Joe Pisapia on the over-under for Jose Altuve's home runs was set at 22.5, and you took the under. Why the lack of confidence in Jose Altuve's power? Um, I, my better question is for Joe, and what, why in the world did he take the over at 22.5? Um, I feel like this. The most homers that Altuve has ever had was 24, and he did that having 662 plate appearances one year and 717 in a different year, which are a lot of plate appearances. In those years... His homer-to-fly ball rate looked a tad lucky, and for somebody who makes more soft and medium contact than others at that power threshold, I just don't buy the power. I mean, he's still my top second baseman that I would draft. I just don't buy that many home runs. I have him projected for 18 homers. Um, The interesting thing is when I look at the assortment of underlying projections that I use, almost all the projections are in the 17 to 19 homer range. One projection system has them for 21, but that's about it. So for me, on an even money bet, 22 and a half over under, I'll take the I'll take the under. Sorry, Joe. In another Twitter post, you cited a report the Braves were going to bat Ender Inciardi lead off this season, and you talked about the fantasy implications both for Inciardi himself and for current first-round ADP'er uh, Ronald Acuna. What are those implications? So let's take a look at what happened last year. Inciarte, who batted leadoff for most of the early going in the season, stole 18 bases before May 15th, and most of that was batting leadoff. Um, in fact, he stole 15 of his total 28 bases throughout the year while batting leadoff in just 54 games. For the rest of the season, in the 102 games that he played in other, in other batting slots, he stole just 13 bases. That's a significant difference between him batting leadoff and not. Well, let's take a look at Ronald Acuna. In the 67 games that he batted leadoff, he stole 14 bases. In the other 44, he stole just two. For the Atlanta Braves last year, about 40% of all their stolen bases came from the leadoff spot. So that tells me that it is very possible it is a manager decision as to when they are stealing as to what uh, lineup spot they're stealing from. So the report had that Inciarte would likely bat first this year, and Acuna going to the third slot, which might be the right baseball decision. And if, if you think of it that way, 
from a fantasy perspective, it's very possible that Inciarte's stolen base count will be helped, and more meaningfully for Acuna, that will be hurt. But a lot of Acuna's first-round value has to do with his power-speed blend. So if he's going to bat in the three-hole and manager decision does factor into this, I caution that it's possible he might lose a handful of those stolen bases that people are projecting for him, and that would push him out of a first-round value and make him overvalued this year. Yeah, that's interesting. Of course, somebody's going to argue, well, he'll get more RBIs from the third slot than he would at first. But uh, that might be offset by a few fewer runs. But the stolen bases are critical here. Yeah, and for rotisserie value, um, I don't think that his stolen base offset, is, is, his stolen base drop, is going to be offset by any RBIs that he's going to go up. Remember, also the runs are going to uh, offset the RBIs. In the leadoff spot, you're going to get more runs. So I think that's more of a wash. Stolen bases are just a manager decision that's that's really just context and, and strategy dependent on the Braves. Um, I, I think that it's possible that his value might drop out of the first round. I don't think I'm going to be drafting him at where he's going for this year. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ariel Cohen from Rotographs and CBS Sportsline, developer of the ATC projection system. And Ariel, I always like to ask our experts about players who they think will be boons and banes for the fantasy season, boons being guys you like, but banes being guys you don't, obviously enough. So let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners. Let's start in the American League with a boon hitter. I love Eddie Rosario, um, and I loved him last year. I thought he was a strong breakout candidate, even last year as well. Um, I have him as a $23 player, where he's going at, in the seventh round for an $18 auction equivalent. Um, last year, he had a disastrous second half, but that was all injury-related that he played through. He had shoulder issues, a quad issue, but he played through it, and all of his crappy stats that he accumulated were just being injured. Um, but look at his first half last year. He had 18 homers, 6 steals, 52 ribbies, a 315 batting average. He not only returned a, a number one outfielder value, he was returning first round value until then. Um, and he is a guy who really does it all. In, he gives you something in all five categories. I have him projected from mid-80s, runs in RBIs, 20. 20 homer power, double-digit steals, a very solid batting average. Um, I think he has legitimate first-round upside this year, um, so I, I'm very high on him. I mean, think about it. What's the difference between Rosario and Chris Bryant? Really not that much. Bryant is going in the third round. Rosario is going in the seventh round. I think he's a great bargain this year. You mentioned something about his great first-half performance, and then the temptation we have is to say, well, if he does the first half from last year twice this year, then the valuation will skyrocket and his performance will be great and, and possibly even first round, as you say. On the other hand, I hear people criticize that approach by saying, you know, for halves, first of all, are relative, relatively arbitrary endpoints. And second of all, there's no reason to assume that that the guy's going to double his first half, considering he didn't double it last year. And I know that's offset somewhat by the injury question, but where do you stand on this whole take a half and double it to try to get an idea of an upside? You certainly can't do that straight. Uh, you know, if somebody goes off in one particular month, that's such a small sample size. Um, you, you can't just double stats. But, you know, it, it is a half season. It's not just a couple of weeks. And it's just an indicator that his player performance is 
his, his level is probably a lot better than people are giving him credit for. I would certainly never double it. I haven't projected for 27 homers myself, which is a lot less than double 18. Um, it's, it's just, you know, when you're fishing for players, um, these are players that you need to take a good look with who show you something in a short period. From your point of view, uh, whether you just do this off the off the back of your envelope or whether you've thought about it uh, deeply and done analysis, how many plate appearances is enough as a, even in a short run to give you some confidence that the player is actually capable of that and it wasn't just random fluctuation? Um, I would say a full season or full season and a half, depending upon the statistics uh, on the exact statistic that you're using. Um, I, I certainly couldn't jump the gun if much less than that, but I would definitely speculate where it's still at a low opportunity cost on somebody, even with a two-month span. As low as two months, that's interesting. Uh, over to the National League, Ariel, who's a hitter you think could be a boon this year? I'm going to go with Josh Bell. He had a great rookie season in 2017 and an obvious sophomore slump last year, but I think that his homer-to-fly ball rate was fluky low. It was at 9%, where the prior year it was close to 20%. So if that somewhat stabilizes, from that alone, his homer total would go back. Um, I like to look at guys for what all the projections say, and I call Josh Bell a low-variance projection. There isn't much difference in what all the projections say, and all the projections are saying he is a $7 bargain. So I think Josh Bell is somebody who can be a $10 player, and he's going for 2 3 bucks. Well, those are the guys you love, right? $2 and you get 10 that's that's fantastic. Uh, over to the mound, how about in the American League, a pitcher who's a boon? So surprisingly, um, I didn't even think of this player until I ran the ATC projections, Marco Gonzalez. I have him as an $8 pitcher, and he's going for one or two bucks. I'm not even projecting anything crazy for him, something close to a repeat of last year. So even with no growth, I have him at 145 strikeouts, just under a 4 ERA, but he, he could have some upside. Um, his first pitch strike rate is ticking up, which is important for a soft tosser. He throws less than two walks per nine innings, so he has some very good whip upside. He threw 100 innings in just the first half alone, so he is a volume player as well. This, to me, is a boring pitcher who are probably off of people's radars, who you can get for cheap and can earn a medium profit. And in the National League, who's a boon pitcher for you? Kenta Maeda. Um, he plays on a great team. He's in a great pitcher's ballpark. Um, really, anybody playing in the NL West, is, uh, are, they're going to be seeing a lot of great pitchers' ballparks, so it's great to pick one of them. Um, over the last four seasons, Maeda has been a top-20 starter, according to Sierra, which is Situation Independent ERA. Um, most people don't realize this about Maeda, but he had a K per nine of 11 last year, his best yet. His XFIP was 337. Um, you know, he also had a high BABIP last year that he threw, so his 3.81 ERA might actually have been unlucky. My biggest question about Kenta Maeda is, will he stay in the Dodgers rotation all season, or will he get bumped to the bullpen? Last year, he only had 125 innings. Now, I'm only projecting him for 133, and in doing so, he's an $11 pitcher. So, if he could even... If he can get back to that, he's a bargain. And if he can jump up to 175 innings like he did back in 2016, he could approach being an $18, $20 player. 
I've also seen speculation that if Kenley Jansen turns out to be hurt, which is uh, something that people suspect based on last year, uh, Kenta Maeda might be in the mix to, to pick up a few saves, which would really add to his value. Um, I'm not speculating Maeda on being a closer, but if, if that's true, oh, 100%. Then he's, he's going to be a value for, for a different reason, for the saves, but hey, you, know, you want to get, get profitable players, whatever they do. Yeah, and I like these guys that when you look at them, you can see an alternative path to value, not just in what you expect from him, but the you know a role change for a for a position player. You think, well, you know, at four hundred plate appearance, he he could be a, a real value. But if the cards fall in such a way that he's going to get six hundred plate appearances, all of a sudden, I see a, a a legitimate speculative path. If there's such a thing as legitimate speculation, a path to added value, which makes him more attractive to me, especially at the lower price as a, maybe as a tiebreaker between two relatively equal profitable guys at the end of the draft. Yeah. I mean, high skill players who are projected for low ish playing time. Um, all it takes is for some playing time to, for them to bump up. I remember a couple years ago, um, Jonathan VR, um, you know, he was not going for a lot of money, but he had the starting role. He wasn't projected for a lot of innings, but said, hey, he's a high-skilled player. If he performs well, he's going to stick with the role. That playing time will go up. Let's take a $1 dart on Jonathan VR, and he was one of the reasons why I won my NFBC league that, uh, that, that year. Um, and, of course, you know, that's, uh, volume is one way to really bump up. You know, also... Guys who are 15-15, decent average, somebody who is good in every category or not great, well, it takes them to have one lucky year up or down, and they'll still return that value. So, you know, I like the spread the risk kind of good in every category and the high-skilled players with not a lot of playing time that could get a bump from if everything breaks right. So Ariel Cohen's Boons, Eddie Rosario, Josh Bell, Marco Gonzalez, and Kenta Maeda. Let's move over to the Baines now. Ariel, these are guys that you're cautious about, you think listeners should be cautious about. Let's again start in the American League. Who's a hitter you think is uh, going to be a Bane for his owners? I'm going to pick Carlos Correa. Um, I don't even think he's a top 10 shortstop. He batted 239 last year. Now, I understand that might have been somewhat injury-driven, and it will regress up. Um, but I, I really haven't seen anything particularly fluky about his batted ball profile. In fact, he hit even fewer ground balls last year than he did in the past, so it's a little bit cautioning. His steals are pretty much gone. So what do you have now? You have a player who constantly gets injured, mid twenty power, okay average. Um, I do have him as a $17 player, which is good, but it's not great. But he's being drafted as somebody who's great. So I, I caution he's not going to return the value. In auction leagues, Carlos Correa is one of my favorite ideas to nominate if you want to force some money out because there, there's going to be somebody chasing you. Just know it. Uh, a National League hitter who could be a Bane? I have David Peralta. Um, to me, this is a, a regression candidate. He has uh, uh, too much of a ground ball tilt to his batting profile to sustain a high batting average. His home to fly ball rate doubled last year. It was off the charts, so that's due for a major correction. His lineup got worse with Goldschmidt departing, so some of his run production stats are going to go down. It's, it's just a pure regression candidate here. Um, David Peralta is just going to do a lot worse than last year. 893 OPS three years ago, then uh, 728, 796, 868. How far can he fall, do you think? Um, 
maybe 50 points off of that, but the point is he's being drafted a little bit higher, so he, he's not going to return you value. Over to the mound again. Who's an American League pitcher who's a Bane? Um, I have Mike Clevenger as the guy, um, which, is, which is odd because I think he is going to be a great pitcher. He's going to hover around uh, 200 strikeouts. Um, I just don't like the price that, that, that he's going for. He's going for like a $23 fourth-round pitcher. Um, with everything said in the volume, I think he's closer to a $15 value. So this is just a question of I, I like the skills, I just don't like the price. And on the National League side, who's a Bane pitcher for you? Chris Archer. He's a player that I, I will avoid at all costs. Um, his ERA for the past three seasons, I'll read them to you, 4.02, 4 4.07, 4.31. He's being drafted this year as a back-end starting pitcher number two. You cannot have your starting pitcher number two with an ERA of, of over four. Um, he was traded mid-season last year to the National League, and he got the same results. Now, of course, you can't always look at, uh, you know, here are the raw ERAs, but maybe, you know, he was unlucky or there were some predictors. I, I, the one piece of good information I've seen on him is that he is changing his pitch mix a little to more favorable pitchers for him. But if you look at his fastball, which is his mo most thrown pitch, it's really an awful, it's an awful pitch. People are hitting it. Um, so what are you left with with Archer? You're left with a guy who's going to get you 200 strikeouts. That's his positive. But with that, you're drafting a lousy ERA, a lousy whip. You're not going to get a high win total on Pittsburgh. So especially in a shallow mixed league or almost any league, you can replicate his statistics for the roster slot by drafting a high strikeout middle reliever for a fraction of the cost. Let's say you draft Dellen Betances, and then you stream in some good two-start matchups for pitchers when they come up for that roster slot. You'll end up with a result that has better ratios and probably just about the same strikeouts. And because you can do this mathematical workaround, Arthur really, Archer really doesn't have any value, in my opinion. And price is what it's all about. Uh, let's review Ariel Cohen's Baines, uh, Carlos Correa, David Peralta, Mike Clevenger, and Chris Archer. Boy, this has been terrific, Ariel. Tell our listeners where they can follow Ariel Cohen. Well, you can reach me on Twitter at ATCNY. It's a pretty easy Twitter name to remember. You can read my work on Fangraphs in the Rotograph section, where you can also see the ATC projections that are located on every single player page. Um, you, I also write for CBS Sportsline, and you can listen to me on my podcast, which is the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational Podcast, the Beat the Shift Editions. It's a terrific podcast, too. Uh, I really enjoy listening to that one. Uh, should also mention that the uh, f at Fangraphs, you can get valuations from the ATC projection systems. Uh, we should be clear, they're not your dollar valuations. They're, they're their own based on your projections, right? Right. Uh, you can put in your league settings, and it will uh, come up with dollar values. It's, it's, uh, it's the Fangraphs method for that. Ariel, thanks very much for appearing. I really enjoyed it, and I hope to have you back uh, later on in the season. Thank you very much, Patrick. I really enjoyed being here. Ariel Cohen writes for Rotographs and CBS Sportsline and is the developer of the ATC projection system. We'll take another quick break, and when we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, Alex, Greg, and I, coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. The 0-1. Swung on and hit well on the left field. Get out of here, baseball! It's gone! Oh, my God! Can you believe it? Johnny Branch has tied it up. Amazing! 
amazing. He makes a tour, and I'll tell you what, you can't write anything like that. Baseball HQ Radio. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the Market Watch position preview and master notes. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Tampa second baseman Ken Wong. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Although Philadelphia may officially be recognized as a city of brotherly love and really, really good cheesesteaks, Tampa Bay might be a key choice as well. That's because older brother and St. Louis Cardinals outfielder Colton Wong was highly critical of the Rays last season for not calling up his younger brother, 23-year-old second baseman Keen Wong, and he may have a pretty good case. A former fourth-round draft pick in 2013 by Tampa Bay, Keen Wong has spent the past two years with the Durham Bulls, Tampa Bay's AAA affiliate, batting 265 in 2017 and batting 282 in 2018. More importantly, Keen Wong has given some indications of developing power, a treasured commodity among middle infielders, building a career-high nine home runs last season. Perhaps even more telling may be that Keen Wong's strikeout rate has also risen proportionately, possibly signaling that Keen Wong was selling out somewhat with his swing to generate a little extra power in 2018. Nevertheless, Keen Wong's numbers in 2018 were solid, but unspectacular. Sorry, Colton. That's why Keen Wong, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are still available deep, deep in your 2019 draft. Nevertheless, Keen Wong is an undervalued, solid, athletic infielder, according to Baseball HQ's 2019 minor league baseball analyst, who, despite only stealing seven bases in 2018, is still considered to be an above-average runner after swiping 17 bags in 2017. A closer look shows that Keen Wong's 75% contact rate, which measures a batter's ability to get wood on the ball and hit it into fair territory, would be the major league equivalent, not projection, but equivalent of 71%. Remember, we at BaseballHQ.com are looking for hitters with a contact rate of at least 70%, and Keen Wong's 75% contact rate at AAA in 2018 and his major league equivalent contact rate of 71% certainly fits this criteria. Of course, Keen Wong's major league debut and his playing time will be strongly influenced by the playing time of Joey Wendell. However, Keen Wong proved capable of playing second, third, and outfield in 2018, possibly making him a valuable utility player. Who knows? Maybe this top star, representing the Air National League at the 2018 AAA All-Star Game, could eventually become a top star on your team, especially when you consider adding Tampa Bay Rays second baseman Keen Wong as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. 
Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And make sure you go down to Chicago if you can for the first pitch forum. That's next weekend. Now it's time for our Market Watch position preview. These assessments are based on Matt Cederholm's excellent work at BaseballHQ.com, comparing current player ADPs with their HQ projected values to identify risks and opportunities. Here with a scan of third baseman is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. The universal draft grid from our 2019 Baseball Forecaster shows the top five tiers for third base include 20 strong plays for fantasy rosters. That makes it seem as if all owners in a 15-team mixed leagues should get at least one above-average contributor at the hot corner. But as we'll see next week, the fall-off at first base means more teams will be competing for third basemen as corner infielders. Don't despair, though. There's a baker's dozen of additional multi-position players eligible at third base, and even five more beyond that who would qualify if your game's played threshold is down to 10. Cross-reference your lists to add players like Eduardo Escobar, Joey Wendell, Eduardo Nunez, Aledmus Diaz, Ian Happ, Jed Lowry, Wilmer Flores, and Carlos Santana. Of the top 25, whose primary position is third base, the National League has 16 and the American League has only 9. Adding in that Baker's dozen of multi-position players gives American League-only leaguers 7 more for a total of 16, but the National League adds another 6 for a total of 22. AL-only owners may need to visit the bargain bin because only one of you is going to get Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And National League-only owners who want to double dip by getting a third baseman at corner infield may have to grab their targets early in drafts or pay a premium in auctions. So let's see what BaseballHQ.com's Matt Cederholm advised regarding market inefficiencies in his third base market pulse analysis. 13 third basemen are going in the first 110 picks of NFBC drafts so far, four from the American League and nine from the National League. Consensus number one prospect Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is going at 41. He has a rating of 10C in our 2019 minor league baseball analysts, meaning we project Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to have a 50% chance of joining his father in the Hall of Fame. But with uncertainty surrounding when the Blue Jays will call up Guerrero and start his service time clock, we have him ranked at 470. He's going 429 picks earlier. Meanwhile, more as expected, Jose Ramirez and Nolan Arenado are going in the top 10. Let's hone in on some notable differences between pre-spring trading ADPs and BaseballHQ.com rankings. To begin with, Chris Bryant is going twice as early as we think he should. We have him ranked at 64 and his ADP is 32. Reviewing Bryant's 2018 shoulder woes and previous injuries, Cedarholm suggests skipping Bryant. The best top-tier third-base bargain is Miguel Andujar, because his ADP is 69 and we have him ranked 30th. Even if Mike Moustakis signed with the Marlins, his value could hardly be better than the three-round difference between his ADP of 148 and our ranking of 98. Target Moustakis in round 9 or go up to $15 for him. Early drafters are looking past the F grades of both Josh Donaldson and Will Myers, taking them at 100 and 110, respectively. We have them ranked at 184 and 222, so Donaldson is going 84 picks early and Myers 112. Be sure you can cover your bets if you're going to gamble on good health for either one. Should you pass on Donaldson and Myers in round 7, Cedarholm sees some more reliable values coming in rounds 10 to 15. Yulieski Gurriel, Kyle Seeger, and Jake Lamb are undervalued by a combined 335 slots or $20 in average auction value. We have Gurriel ranked at 96 and he's going at 178, an 8-round discount. Seeger is going at 242 and we have him at 140, a 7-round discount. 
and Lamb is the best third base bargain on the board. Like Donaldson and Myers, Lamb has an F health grade, but Cedarholm is also the author of our Big Hurt Injury Report, and he assesses the 10-round discount as worth the risk from Lamb's frayed left rotator cuff last year. We rank Lamb ahead of both Donaldson and Myers at 124, and his ADP is behind both of theirs in round 18 at 275. Finally, at age 33, Evan Longoria is now an end gamer with an ADP of 357. But that's a 79 slot discount compared to our ranking of 278, which makes him a nice source of potential profit. Let's conclude by going beyond Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to list some other third base prospects. With his power beginning to show, slick fielding Cabrian Hayes now profiles as a potential five-category contributor for the Pirates. The Rockies are negotiating an extension for Nolan Arenado. If Arenado leaves Colorado, Colton Welker is waiting in the wings. The Braves blocked Austin Riley by signing Josh Donaldson for a year, but Riley could still arrive in Atlanta this season. And Boston's Michael Chavez bounced back from an 80-game PED suspension with a double-A OPS of 919. To recap, cross-reference your draft list to add multi-position players eligible at third base. The balance between AL and NL third basemen heavily favors the National League, but even NL-only owners who double-dip with the third baseman at corner infield will have to concentrate to get a pair of good ones. For a precise picture of player rankings and values specific to your leagues, use the custom draft guide at BaseballHQ.com. And stay ahead of your league mates with our Market Pulse series. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick does our Market Watch position previews all during the preseason. He'll also have his weekend pitcher matchups once the season gets underway. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about some end gamers I've been tracking for the HQ Wonk League. I'll be embarking on my first draft of 2019 on Tuesday night. That's when the brand new 15-team mixed HQ Wonk League kicks off with an online auction involving 15 highly skilled expert writers and analysts from Baseball HQ. Well, make that 14 highly skilled expert writers and analysts, plus me. The league has a keeper format, and year one figures to be really important in setting up for a decent long-term run. With that in mind, I've been focusing my attention and research on picking out $0 players for the end game and reserve rounds. I enter the guys I find as targets in the Rotolab draft software that I use and really like. Full disclosure, I don't pay for it presumably because I'm an influencer, like those gamers and fashionistas and seven-year-old toy critics who make millions of dollars from YouTube and Instagram. I've been tagging players now for a couple of weeks, whenever I have a few minutes away from real life. Today I turned on the filter in the Rotolab draft screen and saw to my amazement that I have at least one endgame target at every offensive position and about a dozen starting pitchers. So I thought I'd share some of these names with you, and then wait for someone to send me a check for $6 million because of all the influencing that will result. Of course, I might not be 100% straight on how all that works. The valuations are based on Baseball HQ projections and Rotolab's valuations, which in turn are based on the HQ Wonk League scoring rules, which are a little different from standard 5x5. We use on-base percentage instead of batting average, net steals, stolen bases minus caught stealings instead of stolen bases, innings pitched instead of wins, strikeouts minus walks instead of just strikeouts, and saves plus holds instead of just saves. I'll do these position by position. 
Prospects are important because the HQ Wonk is, as I mentioned, a keeper league. I'm not looking at relief pitchers because no closer is valued at $0, and so many non-closing relievers are in the $0 range. At catcher, Francisco Mejia of San Diego. I forgot to mention HQ Wonk is also a one-catcher league, so Mejia will probably be a reserve round stash. But in two catcher leagues, he could be worth a look. His major league performance so far, a 174-250-333 slash, will not get anybody's drool glands working, but he's shown that he can get the bat to the ball, with contact near and often over 80% in almost every one of his minor league seasons, despite almost always being young for the level. He's still just 23. His batting average and on-base percentage have been restricted because of a pretty pronounced ground ball tilt, which he's going to have to get past because it's killed his hit rate at Major League Baseball. Another possible fly in the long-term ointment is that Mejia has struggled defensively to be charitable, and the Padres might want to move him out of the catcher slot and into the outfield, where he's not skilled, or to first base, where he's blocked by Eric Hosmer, or maybe to DH, if the National League adopts that rule finally. His bat will clearly play better behind the plate than in those other places, but for a reserve slot, I'm willing to take the chance. At first base, Ryan O'Hearn from Kansas City. O'Hearn stroked 12 homers last season in 170 big league plate appearances at Major League Baseball and logged a 950 OPS. Pro-rated to 600 plate appearances, that puts O'Hearn in the mid-30 home runs. Of course, the plate appearances aren't a given. O'Hearn has had difficulties with left-handed pitchers, so he could lose bats in a platoon situation. But still, Paying a buck or two for the potential of mid-20s homers with mid-70s RBI, he'll probably be hitting 5th or 6th behind all of those rabbits in KC. It makes O'Hearn at least a little intriguing and a better upside bet than paying $14 for a first baseman like Justin Smoke. At third base, Hernan Perez of Milwaukee. In three seasons with the Brewers, Perez has 36 homers and 58 stolen bases in 1,222 plate appearances. If you prorate that to per 600 plate appearances, that puts Perez close to 20 homers, 30 bags, and that's really getting it done. The main issues facing Perez are a sub-300 on-base percentage and the competition for playing time. He's a nominal second baseman, also eligible at short third in the outfield, but he faces competition everywhere, from Travis Shaw at second or third, from top second base prospect Keston Hyura at second, there's a stacked outfield, and they have Orlando Arcia at short. Perez has an alternate path as a super utility, but even there he faces the likes of all those other players, plus Corey Spangenberg and outfield reserves like Eric Thames and Ben Gamble. Still, if he gets any kind of playing time and your batting average or on-base situation can absorb the hit, Perez could be a very valuable chip when your injuries start to hit. At second base, Keston Hayura. Now, I know I just bet on Perez at second base, so you can call this a hedge. You can call it a flowering shrub. You can call it whatever you want. But I can see Hayura fast-tracking to Major League Baseball on the strength of excellent contact skills, a top prospect pedigree, and enough of an eye to generate a 313 batting average and 374 on base in two full minor league seasons that went all the way from rookie to double A. Don't be shocked if Hayura gets a stint in AAA at the start of the season for seasoning, which means service time manipulation, but even if he's not up till summer, he's still got an excellent chance to rake, and he's got decent enough speed that he could throw in some bags, although with 13 caught stealings in 2019 to go with 17 swipes, he's going to have to work on not getting caught. 
At shortstop, Bo Bichette of Toronto. This is almost surely going to be a longer-term prospect play. As Jock and I discussed earlier in the AL Player News, the Blue Jays signed Freddie Galvis and appeared determined to regularly stick his 664 OPS into the lineup. They also have holdovers Lourdes Gurriel and Devon Travis, but none of these guys can match Bichette's bat, which has produced a 906 OPS in three minor league seasons, as he has also shot up through the minors. He had double-digit homers and steals last season at age 20 in AA, and a 15-30 combined mark per 600 minor league plate appearances. He's not likely to be an impact hitter at the majors in 2019, and that shouldn't matter for fantasy with the big leagues loaded at the shortstop position, but Bo Bouchette is a great stash for the future, with some 2019 upside. Outfield, Roman Quinn of Philadelphia. Here's an interesting tidbit. Quinn has had 1,592 minor league plate appearances and 159 minor league stolen bases. That's eerily close to exactly one bag for every 10 plate appearances, so if you give him 600 plate appearances, you're taking a fairly big step towards winning the stolen base category. Of course, the problem, Quinn is on the outside looking in at a Philadelphia outfield that features Andrew McCutcheon and Odabel Herrera as playing time locks. But Nick Williams looks like he could be vulnerable, maybe to a platoon. If so, that could give Quinn some playing time and some pinch running opportunities. If you give him, say, 250 plate appearances, you could still get 20 to 30 bags with a decent batting average. He hit 266 in the minors and had a 340 on base percentage. Those kind of levels could help your team, and at least not hurt it. Finally, a starting pitcher. I like Andrew Heaney of the Angels. Since I started making notes for this edition of Master Notes, Heaney seems to have been discovered. I've heard his name on several fantasy podcasts and read it in several fantasy websites. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention earlier. Heaney still just values out at minus $2 in HQ Wonk, but he went in the 11th round of this week's Labor Mixed Draft, a pick with an implied value of five or six scoons. So if Heaney was a secret, I'm afraid the secret is out. I still like him, maybe not so much at that price. I'll also be looking at Yanni Chirinos of Tampa, who went well into the reserve rounds in Labor after a nicely skilled $4 season last year. One of the reasons I like Chirinos is because I really like how Tampa thinks about pitching, and I think that could pay off for a talented young player like Chirinos. I don't know how many, if any at all, of these players will end up on my roster on Tuesday night, or whenever we end up finishing, which by all accounts could be just before the end of the NBA playoffs. But I have a few more players to look at, and I'll keep tagging them as I find them. If you have any more ideas, send them to bhqradio at gmail.com, and that goes double for all you guys who are playing in the HQ Wonk League. Now, consider yourself influenced. And where's my check? For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February the 15th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number three of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests for this Friday full edition, Ariel Cohen from Rotographs and CBS Sportsline and the developer of the ATC projection system. Ariel was a terrific guest and he has a great Twitter feed, at ATCNY. Check him out and we'll have Ariel back again later this season. 
I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky, and our Market Watch position preview was presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Masternodes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, the first pitch forums are underway. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, wherever you get your pods. And if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a good rating. It helps us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday as we start our two pods a week for spring training. Our guest on Tuesday will be Justin Mason, the founder of the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational and a widely known fantasy writer and researcher. That's Justin Mason on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.